Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Rob Henderson. He's a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge, a US Air Force veteran, and an author. Humans are an odd species. We know truths on our own, but choose to lie in groups. Our thinking gets hijacked by social norms, paths of least resistance, lies, and half-truths. It's a mess out there. But thankfully, there's ideas that we can discover to help us navigate. Expect to learn what the friendship paradox is, how we can fix the mate deprivation problem, what green flags most women look for in men, the relationship between social media and hostility, why people reason more wisely about others' problems rather than their own, what Rob's thoughts are on the most recent wave of the body positivity movement, and much more. This episode is brought to you by... Marrick Health. I wanted to get my blood work done in America, and after doing some digging, I found that Marrick Health was the best and most comprehensive company out there. I loved the process so much that I actually reached out to the owner and asked them to be a partner on the show. That's how impressed I was. You can stop guessing when it comes to your health by actually getting blood work done to provide valuable insights into what is going on inside of your body. You go to any LabCorp facility around the US, they will take your blood and you receive biomarker feedback with actionable steps to improve your metabolism, libido, mood, cognitive health, and everything else. Once you get your labs done, you have the choice to meet with a medical provider to discuss potential treatment options too. Also, you can get a 10% discount off everything site-wide if you go to marickhealth.com slash modernwisdom and use the code modernwisdom at checkout. That's M-A-R-E-K health.com slash modern wisdom and modern wisdom a checkout this episode is brought to you by crafted london finding men's jewelry that doesn't suck is very difficult and crafted london have nailed it they're the number one men's jewelry company worldwide they're sweatproof waterproof heatproof and gym proof they've got custom designs in gold and silver necklaces chains pendants bracelets rings and earrings if you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on youtube wearing a necklace it will always be from crafted i absolutely love it it works with formal wear casual wear whether it's daytime or nighttime all of the pieces are super high quality the designs are great and uh, i love them that's it's all i wear also they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout Recently, I went and got a gut microbiome analysis, and one of the products that they suggested I start using was a colostrum product. The brand they recommended was Armra, so I actually decided to partner with them. I've started drinking it with a cold glass of water on a daily basis, and it improves my gut health. That's really important for me. I'm kind of focusing on gut health at the moment, and Armra's colostrum product is literally what my doctor suggested that I should get. Unlike most colostrums, Armra leverages their proprietary process that guarantees the highest potency and bioavailability of any colostrum available on the market. They've got thousands upon thousands of five-star reviews, offer a 30-day return policy, and you can get 15% off your first order by going to tryarmra.com slash modernwisdom and using the code modernwisdom at checkout. That's tryarmra.com slash modernwisdom and modernwisdom at checkout. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... Rob Henderson. Yeah. 
What is the friendship paradox? The friendship paradox is this phenomenon in which uh, your friends have more friends than you do. Uh, your sex partners have more sex partners than you do. Your Twitter followers have more X. Your X followers have more uh, followers than you do. And it's, uh, it's a paradox because it seemingly doesn't make sense. I mean, how can your friends have more friends than you on average? And many, uh, many of your listeners, especially, I think will be familiar with this sort of Pareto phenomena that, you know, a, a disproportionate uh, number of, of awards go to a small number of people, a disproportionate uh, uh, amount of money goes to a small percentage of people as well. But this also works in the social realm. So you know, the example that I gave in a recent Substack post is to imagine you have, keep it easy, you have 10 friends and uh, three of your friends are kind of like you, you know, just kind of an average person with an average social life. Uh, you have three friends who are shut-ins, who maybe don't go out that much, but you have another friend who is a super connector and has 100 or 150 or maybe even 1,000 friends. I mean, some people who, who are just sort of very social, super extroverted in that 99th percentile. And so when you average this across all 10 of your friends, uh, they, they may have you know, on average, 20 plus friends while you have 10. And so it's it sort of, it, at, at first glance, it doesn't make sense. But then, you know, when you, when you sort of break it down mathematically, it does. And this is why there's that, that paradox. And then same with sex partners. You know, maybe you've had five or 10 or 20 sex partners, but one of those people may have had 100 plus. And so when you average that out, your sex partners have had more sex partners than you. And then same with Twitter followers, right? Like, you know, maybe uh, you know, one of your followers has, you know, a million plus while you have 10,000 or something. Average that out. The math still um, shakes out in the same way. The example that I, that I also gave in that essay is, uh, you know, when, when Warren Buffett walks into an auditorium, everyone becomes a millionaire on average. Right? <laughs> and it's the same kind of idea here. So. Yeah. And what's the implication psychologically for people mm. with that? Is that a felt sense at all? Because obviously it's yeah. uh, kind of anti-typical uh, to what you would expect this is all a surprise to everyone to find out that if Warren Buffett's in the local postcode, that they've just become a, an honorary millionaire for the most, due to mathematics. Mm. Is there some sort of sense by which people are, are conscious of this sort of thing? I know that Gad Saad in his most recent book talks mm. about uh, the best sort of people to be friends with the people who are having a little bit less sex than you. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember that. I remember that from from his book. Well, yeah, so so I think that we 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 fall prey to um, so so in that the, the classic psychology book, Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman coined this term: "What you see is all there is," uh, and we pay attention to what's visible, what's right in front of us, the the known knowns, but we don't necessarily pay much attention to the the known unknowns, the things that that aren't in our immediate uh, line of vision. And so, with with the friendship paradox, we will pay a lot of attention to the most extroverted people. They're very visible. They enjoy often being very visible. Extroverted people tend to be that way. They update their social media pages a lot. Uh, when you, they're they're more likely to uh, text you and then be responsive to your texts, and more likely to to, to meet up with you and then tell you about their uh, uh, adventures hiking in the Himalayas or how they just got back from this country or uh, just got done speaking at, at at this event and so forth. And so you're listening to this person, and and for many people, they may hear this and think like, "Wow, everyone out there is." Doing Doing all of these great things and you know here i am sort of working my nine to five or just you know sort of living a, a, a normal ordinary life and uh and many people uh will report feeling sort of um uh diminished socially uh and this is an interesting phenomenon here because there's a ton of research in social psychology on this idea called the better than average effect 
uh, and the better than average effect or the illusory superiority effect, as it's sometimes called, is essentially that we tend to uh, uh, believe ourselves to be better than others. There's this sort of self-enhancement that goes on. So when you ask um, people, are are you, you know, are you smarter than average? Are you a better driver than average? <laughs> it's like 75% um, of people believe yeah. that they're a better than average driver. Exa yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's there's in academia too. You, you know, you ask students, are you a you know better student than average? Ask professors, are you a better teacher than average? And you know, yeah, exactly. 70, 80 plus percent say they're better than the average person uh, in all these domains. Um, and yet um, there's fascinating work on related to the friendship paradox that we tend to have a sort of uncharacteristically dismal view of our social lives. So there've been a couple of studies now in which you know, they, they ask participants, uh, you know, do you, do you go to more if you were parties than others? Do you see your family more or less than others? Do you have more if you were friends than others? Do you eat alone more or less than others? And generally speaking, people think that they are uh, sort of less socially connected. They have fewer friends, they eat alone more, they go to fewer parties. And so this is an inversion of the illusory superiority exactly. complex. Right. We sort of have, a, at least in the social realm, a, a lesser than average effect rather than the better than average effect. And, and this is related to that friendship paradox and that, um, that sort of what you see is all there is. Uh, the way the researchers explain this is that, um, again, so, you, so you, you, when you think to yourself, well, do I go to more or fewer parties than others? Well, you know, when I see other people at parties and I'm not at a party and, uh, you know, I, I see my family, you know, X amount of times a year, but then when I pull up social media and I see people, you know, taking selfies with their dad or whatever, mm. um, or their mom or their sister. And so you see all of these and then you start to think, well, you know, I'm not with my family right now when I saw that photo. And so you, uh, sort of easily sort of fall prey to this idea that, well, everyone out there is taking these selfies and having a good time and going home and, and, um, and you're not. And you're not paying attention to the people who aren't with their families. Uh, you know, one of the lines I use in, in that post sort of summarizing this research is, no one is taking uh, photos and posting them online when they're eating lunch alone or when they're binge watching a TV show or when they're just having an off day and just need some time to decompress and be alone for a while. Mm -hmm. They're not, uh, you know, uploading a video or taking photos of themselves. That, you know, we, we tend to take photos when we're being social, when we're being peak extroverted. Peak experiences. Exactly, the peak experiences. And and uh, I know you've, you've, you've talked about this before about uh, what is it, comparing... Uh, uh, you know, your blooper reel to everyone else's highlight reel, Correct. something like that. Yeah. And yeah. so we do that. And then we tend to think like everyone else is sort of at the party without you. Uh, there's a nice line uh, in one of the papers that I cite the researchers, you know, sort of, sort of um, painting a picture of what this might look like of a student in, in a college dorm room, uh, maybe doing their homework, being a diligent student, and they hear a party going on upstairs. Mm. And you hear all the lights and all the music and everything. And it, it sounds like everyone's up there. And you're thinking, wow, I'm the only one here doing my doing my homework. But you're not, you know, you, you're, of course, you're not hearing all of the other students uh, in that dorm room as well. Doing also their homework. <laughs> doing their homework. They're not making any noise, yeah. right? So this is what you see is all there is or what you hear is all there is. And so that person is sitting there thinking, everyone is at the party without me when well, this isn't the case. Um, it's just, you happen to be hearing the people who are at the party, right. not the people who aren't. So there's a, this is very much due to the visibility of particular types of social experiences mm. that is now facilitated by being online. Right, right. I learned about the 1% rule oh, yeah. from you. Okay. Go through that. I feel like that's yeah. related here. This is the 1% rule on the internet. And it's, you know, it's, this isn't uh, empirical research, but this is just a sort of shorthand way of understanding how, uh, how social media works, how the internet works now. Uh, and the basic idea is that uh, online, 
1% of internet users uh, are creators. They're the ones out there producing the videos and the podcasts and the, the written content and all of the things that we're sort of consuming when we pull up on our phones. And then 9% of internet users are, uh, are commenters. They're engaging with the content in some way. Maybe they're uh, reposting or retweeting or liking or commenting. They're the ones who sort of uh, want to engage with the content in some way. Maybe they're not uh, uh, original content uh, producers, but they do like to sort of uh, make themselves visible by, by, uh, by being commenters and so on. And then 90% of people are just lurkers, the people that we aren't seeing, the people who are just sort of passively scrolling their phones or uh, uh, you know, looking, at your, looking at your stuff, listening to it, reading it, but they're not, um, they're not engaging with it in the same way. And I think a lot of, you know, so I'm a, I'm a Substacker, you're a podcaster, I think a lot of content producers- 1% they, club baby. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, the 1%. <laughs> but we pay a lot of attention to that 9%. Uh, and, and of course, because of the, uh, the negativity bias, you know, you may have a uh, hundred nice comments and then there's three people who are like, wow, this sucks. Yeah. And you're like, you know, you'll beat yourself up that day. Like, man, why do these people not like this? Um, but you didn't, you know, you're, you're, you're assigning less weight to those 97 comments that were positive, but you're also not thinking about the 90% of people who didn't comment at all. Wow. And based on that breakdown, right, if, if 97 comments are positive and three are negative, you can probably estimate that that's probably roughly how those other 90 970 exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah silent yeah. nice comments yeah i saw this um yeah i read this this uh this essay uh, uh recently about about a tv show uh in which the executives were threatening to cancel it uh because they had received and this was i think in the 1980s it was a sitcom and uh the executives were threatening to cancel it because they received some some angry emails or not or angry angry snail mail from from the viewers so this was the 80s and uh, and the, the the showrunners were basically they drew this analogy of like you know this is like you know going going to a stadium of a hundred thousand people and two of them write a nasty letter to you right that's the equivalent right because we have x number of million viewers yeah, and yeah. and you got a couple of hundred mean letters yeah whereas the other million plus people didn't write anything or maybe they're writing positive things and so I think yeah we that that one percent rule can sort of help us to contextualize um, sort of all of the social phenomena that are going on online. I remember the general election a few years ago where the Tory party won by the biggest landslide in a very long time and the, the red wall fell and all the rest of this stuff. Mm. Uh, and I remember seeing Stormzy hmm. or Bugsy Malone and that year's winner of Love Island and someone else like like Daniel Radcliffe or someone uh, tweeting about how, you know, we need to make sure that we get the Labour Party in and I'll be voting Labour. And you see all of these replies. And I was like, oh my God, mm. look at this. It's going to be a total landslide. You know, like they've got Bugsy Malone has <laughs> tweeted about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, then it was the as far in the opposite direction as it's ever been in 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like, you know, the map is not the terrain. Yeah. And the internet is not the real world. Right. And here's another thing as well. You know, you've got the 1%, 9%, 90%. Mm. But I think it's only around about 10 to 15% of people in the UK have a Twitter account. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah, so yeah. not only are you not thinking about all of the silent lurkers, yeah. you're not thinking about all of the people who aren't on Twitter that don't yeah. even know that this They're is not going even on. looking at it. Did you hear the episode I did with Sam Harris? Uh, I, I listened to clips of it, yeah. Cool. So he comes up with this idea called digital leprosy. Hmm. This What's is just awesome by him. Okay. So he says, um, 
because he's no longer online, mm-hmm. he's not exposed to the potential cancellations and online furors that he's a part of. So kind of in the same way as a leper may be losing limbs and, and digits and be unaware that it's happening, right. he may be being canceled right now, but because he's not online, he's unaware of the cancellation that's occurring or the whatever, like he's, Sam Harris is trending again. He's like, well, I'm not on Twitter. And he's told his friends, look, don't send me screenshots of what people are saying about me on the internet. Hmm. So he is able to just you know, blissfully move through his existence. He called it digital leprosy, which I just thought yeah. was like such a such lovely a, idea. It's an evocative term. Yeah. Man, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I guess in that case, it would depend on what your what your aims are, I could imagine. So someone like Sam, you know, he's uh, he's an intellectual, he has his podcast, and he probably, it, it wouldn't help him to see all of the, the nasty comments. But if you're... I think it may be a little bit more than uh, like two out of 100,000 or whatever at the moment <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah. He's kind of popular to hate on the internet. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, that's a good point. But but I, I suppose, well, for other people, if you're, well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind would be like a politician. You would want to know what's going on, how people are reacting to you. Yeah, exactly. Sort of keep your keep your finger on the pulse of uh, your constituents. Um, there is a, there is a, uh, one of the, one of the chapters in, in Robert Greene's 40 Laws of Power where, and, and the book is about the attainment of power, of course. So, he writes that in in those kinds of situations, uh, you actually want to be more plugged in to the social scene. It it actually isn't wise to withdraw uh, mm. because you'll end up losing power. You'll end up losing influence. Interesting. Um, he also has a rule about how uh, aloofness is alluring, though, mm. uh, which I think is interesting and mm-hmm. is definitely true. Yeah. I was with <coughs> uh, Dan Bilzerian mm-hmm. last weekend yeah. and uh, was talking to him, and he's kind of been he's sort of absconded from the permanently online Instagram, you know, like tits and psychedelics existence that people he kind of got famous for and i was asking him about that and he said well you know like he's kind of going through a bit of a metamorphosis at the moment i think in in many regards Hmm. um which was very interesting to see and i sort of dug into his psychology a lot over dinner Hmm. uh but also he was like from a tactical perspective just not being chronically online sucks in speculation which is actually good for brand mm. in some ways you know, people are like oh, what is happening and i think you remember this may have been different for you given your uh slightly more chaotic than my upbringing but each uh each summer when you would leave school and come back you'd always think oh here's my opportunity to reinvent myself like i'm gonna be the sporty kid or i'm gonna be the cool kid or maybe that was just me um but yeah. i kind of get the sense that if you're going through a a, a period of rapid change or mm. rapid reflection or whatever, uh, a little bit of um, receding perhaps yeah. from being so uh, publicly about This is why monk mode, I think for guys has become such an important meme, uh-huh. right? That it's this retreat to focus on the three eyes, introspection, isolation, and uh, like inner work or something else. Mm. And um, the reason that it's so good, I think is that it allows people to like, go away, do the chrysalis thing, and then try and emerge as something new hmm. whilst not trying to bring along all of the existing, like I'm trying to update one step at a time hmm. all of the different changes. It's like, no, 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 I get to go away and then come back with a relatively blank slate or more mm-hmm. blank than it was. Mm-hmm, and um, yeah, I think there's I think there's something there. Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, it, it sort of depends on what your aims are. And I, especially when you're, when you're young and you're still sort of, uh, uh, trying to stabilize your identity and figure out who you are, that having those moments of withdrawal and reflection can, can be very helpful. Um, 
Yeah, and, and and you know it's it's funny those those the, the the laws of power a lot of them do contradict each other and Green openly I've, I've seen him he acknowledges this but mm. it says it's it's based on context it's based on sort of where you are in the life cycle and how um, how power is acquired in your sort of local environment and and so on and so 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 basically you know it's it, this isn't like a one size fits all sort of checklist it's more yeah. of a sort of holistic at all times exactly. in all places exactly. it's in specific times at specific places right right well you've been looking at a lot of young male syndrome mm. recently yeah. I think this is going to be one of the most important memes of the coming decade mm. and uh, both of us have been talking about it at least in part for maybe like three or four years I think online mm -hmm. but it's picking up steam. What have you learned digging deeper into the modern conception of young male syndrome and how it's sort of manifested? Mm. What have you learned? Yeah, yeah. Well, so so yeah, the young male syndrome, this constellation of traits that are associated with uh, a certain period of time in young men's lives, typically the teens and the early 20s, uh, you know, heightened levels of risk-taking, reduced self-control and inhibition. Uh, if you look at rates of criminality, for example, uh, they tend to peak at around age 19. And this is true regardless of uh, culture and society, sort of all across the world in non-industrialized hunter-gatherer communities and you know, all the way up to sort of wealthy and rich societies that it's the young men. If you look at who's committing the crime in that society, it's, it's inevitably going to be sort of men age, say roughly 15 to maybe 24 even things like uh like like so this is just in the u.s context likelihood of being hospitalized for punching walls uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was a nice graph i saw uh and i and i posted it online um of you know the sort of the distribution of of, of um, young or, or men just men in general being hospitalized for and it's all concentrated again 15 to 24 it's like you know 10 year olds aren't being hospitalized for punching walls and neither are six year olds it's all that sort of young male group and you know, I'll, I'll admit i've punched walls before yeah did you see uh alexander datesyke posted a, a quote tweeted a, an image this morning that was a mother mm. asking how she could help her son and it was just a photo of his bedroom wall and this bedroom wall was just hole after hole after oh. hole and then the door had a hole in it and it's like, I mean, it, it looked like a sufficiently flimsy American house mm. that the hospitalization risk was quite low, but that the decorating risk might be quite high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, in that case. I mean, that, that yeah, that that sounds like it would require some some serious intervention, some serious yeah, intervention, some serious treatment. What I find interesting is, uh, especially for young men, that sort of that this this is I think an expression of the young male syndrome is when a young man uh, experiences some, some sort of uh, usually like a minor injury, and then their immediate response is to lash out. So like I saw this with some of my friends where. Um, you know, like maybe uh, I know something simple, like uh, like they accidentally uh, poke themselves in the hand or something, and then their immediate response is to punch something. So they hurt themselves and they're pissed, and then they punch something. And and I think that this is basically a, a misfiring of this kind of evolutionary impulse of of if a, if an intentional agent hurts you, it actually is uh, advantageous uh, to to fight back. Right? Anger response. Right. Exactly. So so if uh, I don't know, like the cactus plant stabs me, you know, maybe punching the wall is unwise. But if you do something to upset me, yeah. and then yeah, I immediately yeah, yeah. respond physically, right. that can actually be um, uh, an adaptive strategy. So I think like that is you know this is this is speculation, but this is what I think is going on there because otherwise it doesn't make sense, right? You're, you're injured. Let me injure myself. Let me break my hand now. Right? Yeah. It makes no sense. So. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so the young male syndrome, yeah, sort of in, reduced inhibition, increased risk-taking, criminality, uh, risky driving. Um, mm. You know, if you look at uh, who who's arrested for drinking and driving, who uh, gets into the most auto accidents, who is the most likely to be killed simply crossing the street. Yeah, so so I think it's, it's yeah, men are twice as likely to be killed simply crossing the street as women. Um, so there are so many sort of different different factors here and. 
There was actually one on the, on the seatbelt point. There was an interesting study which found that men are less likely to wear seatbelts when there's when they're accompanied by a male passenger relative to when they're sitting by themselves or when they're sitting with a with a with a woman. What do you think that's saying? I think that is uh, one possibility here is uh, is essentially the attempt to signal toughness uh, mm. that you know you of course like there's a lot of interesting work here and a lot of discussion and and debate around this um because of course men want to signal to women and we want to signal that we're you know strong and can acquire resources and all those kinds of mm. um sort of bedrock uh um findings in evolutionary psychology but then we also want to impress other men too you know you want to show that you would be a you know in in the ancestral context you want to show that you would be good in a in a violent conflict against a rival strong coalition <laughs> or if you're uh, uh, big game hunting you want to show that you're strong and so i think the way that it might manifest itself in the modern age is i don't need to wear a seatbelt. you know i'm going to show my friends and my mates like i don't need to wear this that, like that I'm two-ton yeah. rocket ship going towards me hasn't got shit yeah, yeah. Uh, we both became fans of that david putz study oh yeah that was able to predict the uh, number of sexual partners based on not female ratings of attractiveness of male faces, but other male ratings of toughness mm. of the same male faces. Super cool study. Yeah. That the women's att attractiveness rating had basically zero predictive power, but that yeah. the man's toughness rating had mm. like quite a good bit of predictive power. Yeah. Was it you that taught me, or was it Dunbar that taught me about um, men's street crossing in the presence or without the presence of women? Hmm. Was that, that was probably Dunbar. Right, okay, so this, this, this study is so much fun. So they got, um, crossing the street is really interesting because it's a relatively discrete variable. You have distance of vehicle from street crossing, and then you have uh, like the presence or lack of presence of a female. And men, the dif difference in how close the vehicles would get, okay. and men were prepared to pr cross the street in mm. the presence of a woman was like, a third mm. of what it was when there was no women around. Like, That's look at all of this, you know, surplus fitness that I have. I'm yeah, going to yeah. cross the street while this car's only 15 yards away from me or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All the, I think, yeah, the young male syndrome is, yeah, I think it, it sort of depends on the context, but yeah, it is most likely to sort of be expressed when you're trying to impress women or when you're trying to impress uh, men. Yeah, again, so I don't think, yeah, it would, I don't think it would necessarily impress young women uh, you know, that you're driving without a seatbelt, right? And I think maybe on some level guys understand that, but with, 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 it wouldn't necessarily, it's not so much that you're impressing your friend when you put, when you don't wear the seatbelt, it's that if you do, you might be mocked or made mm. fun of, or that what's, you know, are, you know, what are you wearing a seatbelt for? That kind of, especially, you know, like 19 year old guys, you know, yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of thing. Um, and so it's not so much trying to look tough, but just not to look weak. Very yeah. interesting. Okay. So, but young male syndrome mm -hmm. specifically seems to be, uh, worsened amongst sexless, dispossessed, mm. rambunctious young guys yeah. coalitioning together in small groups to go and set shit on fire and push over granny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, it's, you know, when when a young man is isolated sort of by himself, there's only so much damage he can do, but it's sort of the the, ri the risk becomes exponentially greater sort of as that, as, as he sort of partners with other men and they collaborate and start to plan. And so, yeah, this is, uh, I mean, so, so 
you had this this interesting term about the the sedation male sedation hy- hypothesis. hypothesis. Yeah, it's in a, it's in a, a study at the moment with Buss and William. They're testing interesting, it. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about because I remember when you first told me about that. Something that had come to mind is, um, you know, I had friends. I mean, this is you know sort of back in the. I don't know if people still play this game, World of Warcraft, but I remember I had a couple of friends who like lost years of their life to this game, and they were like. And, and they, they, the way that they spoke, you know, as, as you know, when you told me about this, I thought like, yeah, these young guys, you know, this is, you know, 18, 19, this was years ago, but they would say like, all right, you know, I gotta, I gotta hop off the phone. I'm going on a raid. You know, I got a raid <laughs> scheduled, you know, like, well, you don't have a raid scheduled. You have, you know, seven hours of sitting in your laptop chair. Computer games <laughs> yeah, scheduled. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in his mind, he's like, I'm going with my other internet friends and we're going to go, you know, yeah. raid this castle or whatever they do in this game. And I could see that, yeah, this is a sort of an expression of that or an example of that, of, you know, just young guys who ordinarily might be out causing trouble and instead they're just online uh, and that's how they do it. You know, I saw this funny, mm. this funny post on Twitter um, and this guy, you know, he said something about, you know, back in the day, if you were like a hyper curious young man, uh, and, you know, you'd, you'd basically start like uh, trying to document the like visible differences between the mushrooms uh, right around your house. And today what they do is like try to collect all the rings in a Sonic game, <laughs> you know, like speed run a, a Sonic yeah, yeah, game, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, I think the the virtual world is sucking in a lot of a lot of uh, angry and aggressive men. But it, it, we may also be losing like that sort of the pattern matching, sort of systematizing. Absolutely, young men too. yeah. Well, it's just it's managed to hijack an awful lot of the status seeking, coalitional, uh, curiosity, adventurous behavior that young men, are, you know, throughout all of history has been kind of acclaimed for. You know, you look at um, my favorite example of the solution for young male syndrome was Portugal in the 1800s. What did they do there? They, the first son was allowed to, there was a, a, an imbalance in the sex ratio. Okay. Uh, and they knew that if son one married, because he was the oldest son, mm. but son two, three, and four perhaps mm. uh, weren't permitted to marry and there weren't enough women to marry, that this was going to cause problems. So they just put them on galleon ships and said, go you know, pioneer the new world, away you go. So they just, they literally exported the young male problem by putting the men on ships yeah. and giving them this sense of adventure, you know, channeling their aggression outward mm. against either a new world or, or political enemies or whatever it was. And uh, yeah, I think that there is still a question. Vincent came on the show, mutual friend came on and he's been researching and he says, you know, every single time that we have high rates of sexlessness and blah, 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 we have an increase in associated violence and mm. it's just at the moment, and someone may tell me that I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem to be there in the data, mm. right? We have incel black pill ideology. There was this period, maybe about two years ago where uh, they were even uh, donated, uh, claimed to be a domestic terror threat, I think, uh, <laughs> incels. <laughs> right. uh, they were a terrorist group, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Um, Where's the, like, show me the violence. Show me the uptick in the violence. Now, that's yeah. not to say there hasn't been an uptick in murders and stuff, but I think a lot of that can be attributed to Something the- Something else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the receding of police from inner cities. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if the, so so on its face, it seems silly, right? That uh, the incels is a domestic terror threat, but I wonder if they were just sort of, if they were actually familiar with the research on the young male syndrome and the sort of historical, pa- I mean, maybe I'm giving them too much credit. I think but, you are. But they essentially, they were sort of anticipating the possibility and they're just sort of getting out ahead of it and saying, well, you have a lot of young, sexless, angry young men. And historically, that's been the, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a group that's been dangerous. So let's just 
designate that label on them. But I think, yeah, in the modern age with, with technology, with video games, with porn, with scrolling phones, I mean, yeah, I've seen sort of research on uh, what young men, like jobless young men do. Mm. Um, and most of the time they're scrolling their phones, yeah. playing computer games, watching porn, overeating junk food. Do you they're see Nicholas really Eberstadt's work on that? Uh, I haven't. Is this this is re related to the men it's without like men not working or whatever it is? Yeah, whatever his book is yeah, called, yeah. It's just awesome. But yeah, it's like some insane percentage of men are neats, not in education, mm -hmm. employment, or training, mm -hmm. uh, but also are prime working age. Like I think it's twenty two to fifty, um, and it's this unseen because uh, unemployment rates are relatively low in America, but hiding in that data is a very unusual cohort of men who are electing to be unemployed. Yeah. They're living on uh, social welfare in one form or another, or and or still living at home, spending an insane amount of hours per year playing uh, video games. And while they're playing video games, 50% of that time is either on prescription medication or whilst taking weed. So you just have a very, it's like, okay, here's the big data. Okay, well, what's that? Like, how's this constituted? Who are the yeah. component people that make up this data and you go hang on a second like what's this chunk it's like i think it's like 8 million or 14 million men prime working age men electing to retreat from the employment market now <clears throat> we put this episode up and uh, a lot of guys that are maybe a part of this cohort are tangential to this cohort commented and you know the sentiment very strongly was why should i contribute to a world which doesn't value me uh, why am I going to work to get a, a five foot three, two hundred and ten pound uh, woman who's already gone through two marriages and got four kids? Uh, you know, just very despondent. Evidently, guys who don't see much future for themselves. Yeah. And uh, it was it was really eye opening because largely the comments on modern wisdom tend to be you know, pretty personal growthy, agentic, highly sovereign, upwardly mobile, etc. Um, but this episode like blasted out of the algorithm into the wider internet, or maybe it got shared on some forums or whatever. Uh, and it was very, very interesting. Uh, and I got to see a, you know, I got a window into, into this world and it didn't seem, these guys didn't seem very happy. Yeah. Um, they were maybe, uh, comfortable in their nihilism, hmm. uh, but I don't think that they were particularly uh, fulfilled. I mean, they're, they may be comfortable when they're young, but there's, I, I, you know, I'd be curious whether sort of as, as we move forward, um, you know, decade or two decades later, I mean, it's one thing to be a, a neat when you're 19 or 23, but when mm -hmm. you're 43 or 51 and you're single, maybe you've never had a girlfriend and you've spent most of the last, you know, several decades just playing video games and, and, and wallowing in yeah, collective wallowing misery in, on you know, forums and stuff. Yeah. It, I think there's, yeah, I mean, it, now in the modern age, we have so much freedom. You don't have to work anymore. You don't have, to, I mean, if you don't want to, or if you live in a modern rich society, um, you can collect sort of extended unemployment or maybe live with your parents or um, find ways to, I mean, you know, very few people now, very few young men are sort of literally starving or having to steal food to survive. And, uh, and now if you want to do something difficult, you have to make the choice to do it mm. rather than... Um, sort of uh, uh, be be pressured sort of by by external factors. I saw this, I saw this, this TikTok video. I'm not on TikTok, but people sometimes send these to me. And I saw this one is this, this, uh, this young guy, I think he was in the army, US Army, and he was just sort of walking through his barracks. And, 
and he was asking these these other these other uh, young young guys, these young recruits, uh, you know, if you could talk to your recruiter right now, what would you say? And uh, you know, these you know these other young guys were like, I told him to go fuck himself, or like, God, this sucks, or why did I do this, so on and so forth. And I'm watching this. I'm like, I know exactly what he's talking about because I was there. I was, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I'd enlisted. You were Air Force, right? I was in the Air Force. And I remember, especially like the first two years are just awful. Like once you get in a bit of rank and a bit of responsibility, like once you go through the training purpose. Stop eating shit. Yeah, exactly. Then you're like, you know, then you're okay. But the first couple of years really suck. And so I knew like these were all very young guys. They were still sleeping in bunk beds. And I would have said the same thing, you know, and I'm glad that TikTok didn't exist back then. <laughs> but I'm watching this and I'm thinking like, these guys don't understand right? In, in five years from now, they're going to be glad that they ate shit for however yep. many years. And yep. they did this, they went through this experience. Um, and, and I think a lot of young, a lot of young guys won't even go that far, right? They won't even enlist, which is fine. You know, everyone has their own sort of th- make your own choices. But in that moment, I understood that like, this sucks. Why did I do this? Like, this is awful. And then you go through it and you can sort of in hindsight, go back and say it like it was, it was a character forming experience. It was good for me. Like I was an idiot when I was 19 and I probably needed a bit of that structure, a bit of that discipline. I needed to have my ass kicked a little bit. And, uh, and I think, yeah, like you don't, but, and, and those guys volunteer to do that, right? You have to choose to do, yeah. undergo that experience. So you've already pre-selected for someone who's got the agency to get moving. Yeah. Yeah. And I had this idea, I had this idea about, um, uh, the the reason that victimhood culture has become so widespread is because the human system's demand for challenges has outstripped our modern reality's ability to deliver that, mm. right? That we want, we just want something to push up against. And if we don't have real challenge, we will create imagined challenge mm. for ourselves. And um, yeah, I, you know, rampant fragility and this kind of like soy externalizing locus of control culture that's going on at the moment. It's so interesting though, that you've got this barbell strategy where, you know, 50% or maybe more percent of the people are young men are happy to lean into the, uh, I've learned a bit of behavioral genetics and evolutionary psychology and, Mm. and taken the black pill in many regards because I'm a genetic dead end. But at the same time, you have the ascendancy of David Goggins, Jocko Willink, Alex Hormozy, you know, these guys who are all about doing the hard thing, overcoming the suck, like no one's coming to save you. It's only you that's going to get you, et cetera, et cetera. So you have this increasing sort of divergence between the two. Uh, And I think, you know, assortative mating, which is people of a kind mating with people of their kind, right? So uh, Silicon Valley, 135 IQ people with, you know, professional tennis level skills, having kids together. So you ha- kind of have this genetic splitting apart, which also is going to have a psychological, uh, like heritable psychological echo, I suppose. Mm. So the conscientious people will have more conscientious kids and so on and so forth. And then Melissa Carney's new book, The Two-Parent Privilege, yeah, yeah. is talking about how those college-educated people who've got that predisposition, again, get an even bigger advantage. So I think that the Matthew effect of this, right, to those who have everything, more will be given. To those who have nothing, more will be taken. It's mm. just going to continue to spread and spread and spread. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's that's a distinct possibility. And it seems like in the short term, that is what's occurring. I mean, I even read this, oh man, which book was this? Uh, it was a speculative hypothesis about why there's a like sort of pronounced levels of uh, 
kids being born on the spectrum in Silicon Valley. And it's because (laughs) (laughs) it's not necessarily because the engineers and the programmers themselves are autistic, but they may be sort of sort of somewhere on the spectrum. And then they partner with someone who also shares some of those genes. And then comorbidity. Exactly. And then they have, well, they have children and then, and then the child is sort of at a, at a heightened risk of, of getting autism. Uh, But I think generally speaking, I mean, I, I don't know if this is, if this is, this could be interpreted as a white pill or a black pill, but I just read uh, this book, The Sun Also Rises by Gregory Clark, who's uh, an economic historian, uh, very well-versed in the behavioral genetics as well. And essentially that book, he documents uh, in various societies, essentially how uh, social status sort of loosely defined as sort of wealth and influence and so on is very sticky uh, across generations. And essentially what he finds, you know, he, he, he tracks surnames uh, and finds that, you oh, know, fuck. Repeat- I got intro to this guy from Matt at Aporia. He's going to come on. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's great. Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, I spoke with, I spoke with Matt about, about, um, Gregory Clark, Gregory Clark's work as well. And essentially, you know, he, he tracked status, not through, so, so, you know, there's, there's, there's this fear, especially in the modern era of assortative mating that more and more women are going, getting educated and men are, are dating educated women and they're having children who are educated and so on. But what essentially he finds is that when you, when you look at data from decades past, centuries past, before uh, women were sort of educationally and economically emancipated, when they were still sort of stuck in these rigid gender roles, if you pair or if you look at the status of, of a given man interested in a woman and then look at the status of the woman's father, there's like a very tight correlation there. So even though the woman herself isn't um, highly educated or isn't working in a prestigious occupation, often she comes from a family in which her father was. Mm. And so one of Clark's claims, generally speaking in this book, is that people are very good at sort of finding people who are similar to themselves, even if you don't have the sort of external visible badges of of class or education or credential. How that, does that manifest if it's not the external badges? Yeah, well, basically people people cluster together in the same clubs, family, friends, organizations. Right, right, right. right. Um, so so maybe, uh, you know, maybe the man didn't meet the woman in the workplace the way that they would now, but maybe, um, you know, his boss's friend says, hey, I have a daughter who you might get along with. And even though she isn't working, she's, you know, the daughter of so the, like the a, friend of the boss. It's like a social instantiation of the uh, class uh, disposition. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, I mean, this is, uh, yeah, this is interesting to me. I mean, so so Scott Alexander did a, a long piece on, on assortative mating, I think earlier this year. And he talked about how there's surprisingly little um, uh, sort of sort of matching across uh, sort of educational and class lines on the things that you would expect on things like like attractiveness, for example. Mm. I think there's this, especially in the sort of like the red pill um, online spaces of you know men don't really care about education; they really care about a, you know how attractive a woman is. Um, and yet, uh, at least the the data that I saw sort of uh, curated by by Scott Alexander is that, you know, it's very rare for a highly educated man to actually date the, you know, the 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 college dropout who... Mm. Uh, the barista works, at yeah, Starbucks. Barista, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or if they do date the barista at Starbucks, she has a college degree. And I think a mistake that we might make, you know, I'm sort of channeling Gregory Clark here, is that like, oh, he knew that she had a college degree and that's why he was open to dating her. Whereas I think Clark would say, actually, they, 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 had, a, they had some conversations together. And through that, he could sort of tell that they were maybe roughly in the same class, the same mm. space, her sort of uh, uh, levels of curiosity and intellect and all of the sort of mm. uh, psychological attributes uh, they they matched along those lines. So, you know, even though she maybe works uh, 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 somewhere 
that doesn't require a college degree. She has one, and she's the kind of person who would get a college predisposed, degree. Yeah, predisposed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they, they sort of match along those lines. The sort of mating still holds. I think, yeah, there's, there's so, so, so again, like, is this a white pill or a black pill? It could be a black pill because, you know, status is sticking. It almost doesn't matter what yeah, you do. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then on the other hand, it's a white pill in that, like, you know, even though we have all of these educational and occupational trends in the modern world, it doesn't actually, it may not actually change the sort of underlying social and romantic dynamics that have sort right. of yeah, been with it's us for more centuries. stable. Yeah. Than we might think. I think they're, yeah, I think it might I mean, you're, be. look at you as yeah. like the poster child for, what was it? The, uh, kids that grow up in, is it single parent homes are like 10 times more likely to go to college than adopted kids? What was oh, the no, stat? No, no, no. So, so the stat is, it was on foster kids specifically. Um, so I did you know, some of this research as I was writing, writing my book that'll be out next year. And then um, I, I wrote this essay that's uh, that was in the free press a couple of years ago, which basically, um, so in the US, kids who are uh, raised in families in the bottom uh, socioeconomic quintile. So the bottom 20%, essentially kids raised in poor families, uh, roughly 11% of them graduate from college, which is pretty low because the, the, the average rate in the U S is around 35%. So it's pretty low 11% versus 35%, but the, um, the number, uh, or the percentage of, of foster kids in the U S who graduate from college is 3%. And so in other words, a kid raised in a poor family is four times more likely to graduate from college than a foster kid. Uh, and so I used, you know, this is sort of essentially to me sort of evidence that instability and uh, sort of disorderly environment yeah. is, uh, is, is perhaps something that we should be paying more attention to. It obviously has an effect, but it may be something that, that deserves more attention than we're giving it relative to sort of the material factors. Did you dig into Melissa Carney's new one? Have you yeah, read that yeah, yet? Yeah, I, re I just read it. I finished it uh, a couple of weeks ago. Excellent book. Excellent book. Yeah, The Two-Parent Privilege. Dude, yeah. so I watched, she's been on the show. Anyone that hasn't seen that can go back and listen to the episode I did with Melissa. She was great. But I mean, she is, you know, as straight down the line, policy wonk, DC pilled as you're going to get, right? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. she's like the female Richard Reeves, mm. you know? Like she's just there to do, help do policy and do the DC thing. And mm -hmm. and she's a statistician, demographer yeah. lady, yeah. right? She's, I, I tried to push her on the episode and was like, so it, why is this occurring? Like, give me the implications here. Infer for me what you think is the underlying mechanism. And she was very reticent about trying to work out what's going on from a psychological perspective. And I thought, wow, that's really, uh, that's a good signal that she's not prepared to get out over what she sees is her domain of expertise. Yeah, yeah. I have this, this is what I do. And uh, she did it a little bit, but she didn't go too far. And I was like, that's a really good signal. Mm. But what I saw on the internet before her book came out, tons and tons and tons of articles saying, you know, this is uh, like hard right Christian talking points uh, being legitimated by cherry pick data. You haven't read the data. The book's not out yet. Yeah. Yeah. And what I saw was her as someone, as far as I could see, that if you were to do political compass on her would probably be like just left of center. Uh, and again, uh, very not prepared to say things that she didn't understand and didn't have data to back up and so on and so forth. But on the internet, the only people that weren't lambasting her as being some sort of, you know, like bigot, judgmental asshole that's telling people that come from single parent households that they shouldn't and uh, what so you're saying that women should stay in an abusive relationship instead of uh, you know allowing their th themselves and their child to have a good step parent and blah 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 like just all straw men shithouse arguments 
And I saw the exact path that many, many people are taking, which is causing them to bend toward the right. Mm. Because you go, oh, hang on a second, I've put this piece of work out, which is relatively dispassionate, which is actually, it's the two-parent privilege. Mm. This is a championing of how we can fix underprivileged kids, which is fundamentally a left-wing phenomenon, right? It's right. class. We're trying to fix the class problem. The only people that were accepting of her or weren't like accusing her of doing awful things hmm. were the people that were center right and further right. Yeah, yeah. So what you see is how somebody that has a left-leaning uh, predisposition, mm -hmm. perhaps, or just a centrist disposition, gets nudged by their treatment toward the right. We go, okay, well, yeah. fuck you guys. Yeah. Like if yeah. if if you're not going to accept me, I'll happily like. And she, I wish that I'd noticed this before I spoke to her because I'd have loved to have asked her about this. But yeah, like that's not. I, I can completely see how the tribalism of, of both sides, and I'm sure that there's an equivalent dynamic on the right pushing mm -hmm. people toward the left that I don't see. Yeah. Um, but the tribalism of the left and the purity spiral of the left yeah. and it, its rapidity at judging people mm. to see bigotry where there may not be some, yeah. I can absolutely see how this is causing more and more people to lean yeah in a different direction yeah yeah i mean yeah i saw i saw a lot of that uh sort of the ad hominems online and a lot of the uh insults and derogatory comments that were directed at her and i thought yeah they were completely unfair the book i mean the other thing is like the book is is very dense but it's also um you can read it in an afternoon i mean she presents the data in a beautiful way a very sort of straightforward way that any sort of educated and curious person can understand. Uh, and it seems like, yeah, most people just didn't even bother flipping through it and, and having a look because she uh, caveats multiple times that this isn't a, this isn't a, a book about sort of sort of judging people or about values. It really is about um, sort of looking just sort of from a dispa dispassionate point of view, what did the data say about outcomes for kids in various sort of family uh, arrangements? So yeah, I thought that was so strange. I mean, yeah, and she does stick close to the data. I think generally speaking, that's a good idea when you're making arguments that are unpopular <laughs> that you should stick very closely to the data and not go too far ahead of your skis there just because um you're going to be held to a higher standard when you say something that's that's unpopular um there's that sort of can versus must distinction uh, sort that? of a classic finding in psychology about how when people are uh predisposed to uh, support a certain point of view, essentially they implicitly ask themselves, can I, and, and then they come across a piece of information that supports that point of view. They implicitly ask themselves, can I believe it? And generally speaking, the answer will be yes, I can believe that. Uh, and when they encounter something that is at odds with that point of view, they mm. implicitly ask themselves, must I believe it? And if they find a reason, if there are any any flaws in that argument or any any reason whatsoever why they can discount it, then they say, oh, I, I don't have to, right? Doesn't, that, doesn't this show up was it you that taught me about how this shows up in Twitter arguments where mm. when people are wanting, uh, somebody puts a point on the internet that goes against something that they believe and then they go on Google and search for uh, like why such and such a thing is true. Mm. Uh, and they're it's like, you're not asking for um, is this thing true? You're mm. looking for arguments that support your side. Yeah. So you're looking for a good barrister rather than an honest judge. Yes, right, right, right. Yeah, you want... Um you want so, uh, well. You're looking for arguments, of course. That's sort of you know, the classic confirmation bias idea. You're looking for information. You're monitoring, and then you're sort of overlooking anything that that might make you feel uncomfortable or that might call your beliefs into question. There was a really cool study. I want to say this was in the '90s. Um, sort of 
along this vein, I mean, it's it's a it's it's a neat example because it's sort of disconnected from politics. You, like, I think anyone can appreciate this, which is essentially what these researchers did was they brought these participants into the lab. Um, and you know they they told these participants you know they showed them um, this this jar and it was really just water but they told them it was this sort of chemical solution <laughs> and if you drop a, a strip of water into it so in one condition they told the participants you drop this strip of water into it um, and it and it doesn't change color it just sort of remains the same white or whatever it was uh, then that means that you don't have this sort of rare unique uh, congenital disease if it, you know you dip it in leave it in for a few seconds pull it out stays the same you're good to go and so they brought some participants in and you know basically they found, you know, participants dip it in, didn't change color, they'd walk right out. In another condition, they told the participants, um, you know, you dip the strip into the piece of paper, and if it changes color, then that means you're good to go. If it stays the same, that means you may potentially have this con congenital illness. And in this case, what did the participants do? They dipped the strip into the water, waited, dipped it back in, waited, took another strip, <laughs> dipped it back in, waited, and then they started to get nervous. And essentially they were going for that confirmation because what, what did they want to believe? They wanted to believe that they were healthy. And when they did not receive information that supported that, then they started to, to sort of you know, shuffle through and, 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 uh, and try, to, try to find ways to confirm that, that, that belief. We both came across the same research that shows that chads rather than incels are the extreme misogynists. Right. Dude, yeah. I loved this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I saw uh, William retweet that one, and of that sort of got does. on my radar. Of course, yeah. he, of course <laughs> he does. Of course yeah. he does. Anything yeah. that's pro-incel. Yeah. Uh, men with higher levels of sex partners are more likely to hold extreme misogynist views, which contradicts the incel narrative. Extreme misogyny correlates with status-seeking and dominance orientation, both of which also correlate with high levels of sex partners. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was a, an absolutely fascinating study, and it it links up very nicely. You know, I, I when I was in in grad school, I read um, David Buss's evolutionary psychology textbook cover to cover, and one of the things he points out there uh, is is uh, that you know there's there's not much, if any, research supporting what uh, what's referred to as the mate deprivation hypothesis. You know, this idea. So the mate deprivation hypothesis is essentially that you know young men who are who are deprived of mates are more likely to develop these sort of uh, 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 misogynistic attitudes, they're more likely to uh, coerce women into sex or more likely to commit sexual assault. And essentially, uh, all of the research that I've seen indicates almost the, the reverse of that, and including the study here, uh, which points in the same direction, which is that the men who are the most likely to commit sexual coercion or assault are also men who are the most likely to uh, to have consensual sex partners as well. Wow. Um, and yeah, all of these things sort of come together and correlate with status seeking, dominance orientation, extroversion, um, the probably I would imagine narcissism as well, and maybe some of the other dark triad traits of being being particularly attractive uh, to women. And I, you know, this is now you know, I'm 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 more comfortable speculating uh, than maybe Get it I out should there. be. You're not even part but, of the academy anymore. Say what <laughs> no, you want. Not. Well, you know, I, I have a foot in, but 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 I'm I'm comfortable sort of making this. This is just a hypothesis, but I think that. Most, many, maybe most women would be pretty reluctant to actually be sort of alone in like, like be in a situation in, 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 in which they could potentially be alone and assaulted by the sort of prototypical incel, like, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're the sort of lonely, unattractive, isolated, angry male. Warning flags. Um, right. Exactly. Like they would know in advance, like, I don't need to be alone with this guy. There's something off about him. Uh, again, the sort of prototypical, I'm not saying all incels are like that, but that sort of archetypal image of, a, of an incel. Whereas um, probably just, just sort of, you know, 
uh, uh, I think this is, this is pretty intuitive that that women would be more willing to sort of be alone and, and potentially be in a risky situation with a man who is attractive, mm. right? And so just through the sort of differentiating levels or different differing levels of likelihood exposure. of being alone and exposure alone, yeah. that um, yeah, that, if, that that assault would be more likely to happen in one context than the other. Um, and so I think that may partially explain some of those differences that if women were alone with actual incels, yeah. as much as they're alone with you know status seeking dominance oriented or, or orientated uh, uh, extroverts, that maybe those the, the numbers would be different. But but generally speaking, I think that finding is suggestive. And then in my own personal life, I mean, when I think about the All guys, the who, men that who, you spend your time alone with, yeah, well, that I spend, yeah, yeah, and that I feel at, yeah. Um, <laughs> but the guys that I know who are particularly you know, well, at least numerically successful. I know people, yeah, what yeah. does success mean in this context? But just have had a lot of sex partners. They do tend to be a little bit more glib, a little bit less um, preoccupied with, well, what does she think of me? Or, you know, or, 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 um, or sort of what traditional or conventional or, or hold sort of benevolent sexist attitudes, right? Mm -hmm. It's usually, usually a little bit more, you know, I guess on the positive, I mean, you're jokey or playful, but then on the other, it can sort of dip into, you know, the example that I, so, so I, I posted a, one of these studies online and sort of commented that, um, you know, I think this is easy to understand when you reverse the genders. You know, if you think about like, like a woman who spends a lot of time um, attracting men, I'm thinking about someone like, like a stripper, for example, <laughs> like I'm sure they have extremely cynical attitudes about men, right? Uh, whereas women, like if you think about a woman who doesn't really, you know, maybe, maybe isn't very attractive or hasn't had a boyfriend or hasn't had that much experience around men, they probably have mm. a little bit more sort of, I don't know, maybe slightly more optimistic views or at least um, less less cynical views Dude, about so men. Sadia Khan, psychology, psychology lady, she does like uh, couples counseling and stuff. Uh, she gave me this really interesting answer to the question, uh, are hot girls more crazy? Right. Okay. So the classic, the classic question, like finally Aristotle's got an answer. Um, and she said that the experience that hot girls have of most men mm. jades their view of all men because the men that she spends her time around are unbelievably pliable. They cheat on their partners with her. They try to shower her with gifts. They say things that they think she wants to hear, they're duplicitous. So the mm. reality distortion field of the beautiful woman causes all of the men or many of the male interactions on average to uh, group together, to clump together in a way which doesn't show men in a particularly good light. Right, yeah. How fucking cool is that as an idea? Yeah. Like the reality distortion field of the hot girl or something. Yeah. Yeah, that is, it reminds me of this, this, this interview I watched years ago of uh, Chris Rock. And he said basically being, well, I don't know if he, he said something along the lines of being an attractive woman is like being a celebrity or being a celebrity is like being an attractive woman, mm -hmm. where once you reach a certain level of fame or notoriety or recognition that people react to you in a predictable way, yep. in a way that, that is often obnoxious or, um, you know, try to give you free things or try to try to court you or, you know, they're, they're looking for something from you. And uh, yeah, that is yeah, where you're only seeing a sort of you're only seeing sort of one version of that person, whereas everyone else might see another version. And, and pre-selecting for the only sorts of people who are prepared to go up to the hot girl in the first place. Yeah, I yeah, saw this yeah. with strippers, uh, yeah. and I would imagine it may be the same with OnlyFans girls as well. A lot of the strippers that I was friends with throughout my twenties when I was working in nightlife had very very jaded views of men mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they were seeing the stag 
on his bachelor party out in Newcastle, you know, trying to get a blowjob off one of the strippers that are in there, yeah, right? Yeah. Like men at their worst, selected for at their worst, around yeah. the women that are able to, you know, cajole or coerce or encourage mm. them to do a thing that's or whatever. Uh, and, oh, that's how all men are. There's yeah, this yeah. really great segment uh, on Rogan's show years and years ago, Tim, one of Tim Dillon's first appearances. And Joe's... I think Tim's talking about how the LA comedy scene is very ruthless mm. and Joe has just moved to Austin and is saying, ah, I don't know what you're talking about. It's fantastic over there. Uh, every time that I go into a room, everyone treats me really great. <laughs> and, blah, and Tim cuts in, he goes, hold on one second. Like you do know that you are Joe Rogan, yeah, yeah, right? Like, yeah. do you, like you bend reality or rather this sphere that follows you where like who the fuck's gonna treat you like shit yeah. right like yeah. the biggest podcaster in the world's just walked in mm. and um i spoke to tucker max about this over dinner a couple of months ago it's so interesting um and i was talking about how I i've noticed certain groups of people treating me differently over the last couple of years is status and and renown and wealth and whatever has, has changed and there is a reason now to be nice perhaps or maybe there's not a reason to be nice they don't even know it but something happens they've heard that's the guy with the podcast or whatever mm. so you just notice that <clears throat> like the average stranger interaction has adjusted in some way maybe i'm just super like charismatic or whatever i've changed my confidence that mm. totally could be it too be, but yeah. my more um like highly skeptical uh, cynical view of it is like people want something or whatever anyway and mm. um i was talking to tucker about this and he said uh to become rich or famous as a man is to accept being uh, a resource to be extracted for, from or an object to be desired. Mm. He said that um, women become objectified as soon as they become, uh, you know, like womanly. Yeah. You know, you're 13 years old and the boys in the class now start to see that you've got boobs and, and then you become like 17, 18 and the whole world objectifies you for a while because your value is immediate and upfront. Mm. Whereas, you know, this is a red pill takeaway, I guess, that like uh, women are born with value, men have to create it. Mm. Um, and it is unless you're Brad Pitt or you know somebody who is is super good looking and has that up front um you have to achieve some degree of 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 self-generated value in order for people to uh, treat you and in a, to objectify you yeah, right like yeah. no one's no one's just objectifying the random dude in the street yeah. but if the random dude in the street gets out of a Bugatti Oh, Maybe yeah. they are, right? Yeah. Oh, what's he got? Oh, dude, yeah, let me yeah, tell yeah, you. Yeah. Let me ask you about blah, blah. Uh, yeah, to, to become a, an ex a resource to be extracted from uh, or an object to be desired. That was very interesting. Yeah, yeah there's a sort of a, a, a positive feedback loop that happens there too. I think with, with the Bugatti example, um, so, so you have this uh, prestigious material good and then you step out of it and then suddenly, you know, you're, you have increased social capital because people are drawn to you. But I think this happens even, even within just the realm of social capital itself. I mean, you know, I, I'll just use this, this personal example of, you know, I was, I was walking through an airport with some friends and, uh, and then, yeah, it was recognized a couple of different times, but, you know, so I, I was with friends, but then they had friends who didn't really know, like they, oh, they kind of know that mm -hmm, I write mm -hmm, and stuff, mm -hmm. but they don't really, and then I got recognized and suddenly they became more interested in talking to me yeah. like, oh, what do you, yeah, what exactly, tell, tell me more about it. And so I think it's like, um, you know, you get recognized once and then other people become interested and then suddenly you can't, you know, yeah. Did I ever tell you that story when I walked down Broadway with Peterson in Nashville? I don't think so. So uh, we went for dinner. It was about two years ago from now. And I went for dinner with him. And there was that famous video of him dancing with his wife and Ben Shapiro was there in Nashville. Okay. Just a few years ago. Oh, I did see. I saw. Yeah, it yeah. was the night after that. So okay. he loved this bar. And we were going to go back to this bar. And he didn't have any of his security with him. Uh, so it was me, Michaela, Michaela's now husband, 
and Jordan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Michaela's husband's like six foot four, oh, yeah, kind, yeah. Of, kind of dude. So yeah, like yeah. he was like, he's like a tall guy or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, but no security. And Jordan mm-hmm. starts walking down uh, Broadway, like the street in Nashville, right? It's where Kid Rock's bar is and Whiskey Row and all this stuff. And they, on a weekend, close it off. At, I think they close it off at both ends. Or maybe they don't. But anyway, it's, it's stacked. <laughs> Someone notices Jordan Peterson and then goes over to like get a photo with him and shake his hand and hello, how are you? And then other people notice that other people are standing talking to someone. So a queue forms Hmm. to speak to Jordan Peterson. He's accumulating a tail of humans as he walked like a fucking comet, right? Walking down Nashville. (laughs) comet. Yeah, honestly. And uh, I I remember thinking like, oh my God. We were at the young uh, delegates uh, dinner, Mm. drinks thing last night at ARC here in London. Uh, And sure enough, there was a, a queue of people. Like this is a conference of people selected for a very like particular set of interests Mm. and then we went to 150 person drinks Mm. thing which is selected from within that group for people that were invited to go to this thing and even within that selected group of a selected group the The peterson comet tail thing existed again so um Yeah, yeah, yeah and that's almost like a like a physical manifestation of what you're talking about that's going on socially, yeah. right? People see, they don't see a physical cue, but they see uh, yeah. a, like a social cue, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. a CUE. Yeah. And they go, oh, okay, right. And it's, I, would, I would be curious, I mean, may, maybe in the, the example of the 150 or, or smaller group of, of selected people, they probably are familiar with Jordan, it sounds like, but uh, in the example of him walking down, is it Broadway, the street yeah, in yeah, Nashville? Yeah. When that tale formed, what I would be curious to know is probably many of those people, maybe most of them, did know who Jordan was. But what I'm curious about are the people who didn't know who he was but just saw exactly. the tale. Let's get a let's like just everyone's get, following let's, that guy. I guess I'll get, get him in line. Like yeah. I guess he's famous. Let's go check this out. And now they're following. And so you know, so yeah. you know, what percentage of those people were were familiar with him too? You know, there's these there are these classic studies from uh, from Milgram. Uh, so most people know Milgram through the um, the obedience studies of you know the uh, uh, he you know, essentially tricked people into shocking and, and believing that they were injuring someone or perhaps killing them. But there were these other studies that Milgram did and, and, and other social psychologists, you know, this sort of classic work back in the day of, you know, he'd just have people uh, on, on like a Manhattan street and just have like four or five research assistants look up at the sky, just like me, you, and a couple of other people just look up at the sky <laughs> like this. And then gradually what happened is people would be walking by and they'd see, you know, four people looking at something and they'd stop and look up too. Like, what are they looking at? And then and then there's suddenly this massive crowd would form entire... of like, suddenly you have 40 people looking up at the sky and no and one knows what they're looking at, wow. right? Everyone's trying to figure out what those original four people, right? So there's that wow. sort of imitative... You know, quality that you know, which is which is you know, it's it's adaptive, uh, but it's also you know, can kind of misfire into these funny situations. Yeah, being moderate is a green flag. You see this new one about extremist views. William <laughs> shared the graph of it. <laughs> I haven't seen this one, but uh, let me not, get your yeah, take yeah, on yeah, this. This is yeah. awesome. Researchers polled over a thousand registered U.S. voters aged eighteen to thirty-four. A majority of both men and women consider far rightism and far leftism to be red flags in a potential partner. Seventy-six percent of women and fifty-nine percent of men consider identifying as a MAGA Republican okay. to be a major turnoff. Mm. 64% of men and 55% of women said they'd also swipe left on someone identifying as a communist. Hmm. So that was high number of women, 76% for MAGA, 64% of men for communist. 55% of women said that listening to Joe Rogan was a red flag. <laughs> 30, about modern wisdom. <laughs> 35, yeah, that wasn't on there. Uh, 35% of men. 
Uh, 41% of men said the same for a woman being into astrology. Mm, okay. I mean... uh, 20% of women. Uh, 33% of men said red flag for they say black lives matter. Hmm. 14% of women. Uh, 53% of women for they refuse to see the Barbie movie. Hmm. Uh, 53% of women, uh, 58% of women for they say there are only two genders. So hmm. more women concerned about the two genders thing than the Barbie movie. Interesting hmm. uh, what that is. But yeah, just overall, it seems like... Um, Far-rightism, far-leftism, uh, uh, being moderate is a green flag, yeah, basically. Yeah. Like having, But that being said, how is saying that there are only two genders like an extreme position? How, how, like, I would have thought that that would have been the moderate position, right? Like, oh. uh, well, I guess it depends. Yeah, but the, the bar stool's been turned upside down. But yeah, overall, when it comes to dating, it seems like a majority of both men and women consider far-rightism and far-leftism to be red flags in a potential partner. What, what, what age group is this? Are these young? young 18 people? to 34. 18 to 30. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, I mean, you've, you've probably seen some of these data too about sort of the political divergence of young men and young women, um, which is really, I mean, it's really interesting because uh, a lot of the the press, the media will concentrate on, you know, the supposed uh, right-wing radicalization of young men when actually m most of the sort of political psychology survey data indicates the reverse, where men are, young men are slightly turning to the right. There's sort of a, a, a slight turn, whereas for young women, there's a sharp like a sharp rise in young women identifying as left or far left. Mm -hmm. So it's actually the, the women uh, who are being sort of uh, uh, radicalized or, or turning to a more extreme direction. Um, yeah, but we don't mind about that one. We, yeah, know, yeah. we don't need yeah, to care yeah. about yeah, that. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, so I think like in, a ter in terms of like violence and so forth, right? There's no, there's no young female syndrome. Uh, you know? or, or if there is one, it would be, it would manifest itself differently. And the female longhouse. Yeah, the longhouse. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, it, in terms of the sort of the classic threats of terrorism and so forth, I mean, but but uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, so so some of those, like yeah, the the two genders one, it, that's interesting. Fifty eight percent of women. I found like the yeah, there's there's a, a sort of a, a neat reversal there of like MAGA Republicans versus communists, where yeah. most men I, seemingly okay with dating a, a, a MAGA identifying woman, but women uh, are more okay with dating a communist identifying man. But here's the thing, right? That yeah. it's not apples for apples, yeah. right? Like 35% uh, of men said that a woman listening to Joe Rogan was a red flag, yeah. but a man listening to Joe Rogan and a woman listening to Joe Rogan is not the same thing. That's true too. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Like there was one about uh, owning a gun hmm. that like some quite high percentage of women said that owning a gun was a red flag, right? Hmm. In America. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But a woman owning a gun is not the same as a man owning a gun, mm. right? Yeah. And, and the same for listening to Joe Rogan and so on and so forth. So uh, it, it's, it makes for very interesting reading, but I actually think that like, if a woman does listen to Joe Rogan, there'll be some non-zero number of men in there that are like, that's a, like, that's a boy's yeah. show. Like why, why like, oh, maybe she's super disagreeable or maybe she's like gonna try and arm wrestle me in bed or something like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have, I've heard this, um, you know, just just speaking with young guys that uh, you know they are to some extent sort of bothered by these gender differences in politics and how like, more and more young women are sort of identifying in in a more sort of ex sharp left wing direction. Um, but then they also sort of lament that you know a lot of young because you have to be you know to some degree psychologically peculiar if you're a young woman who is a sort of right-wing person or, or or identifying openly as a conservative mm. because you're sort of going against the grain, right? Like you are an outlier in that mm -hmm. sense. 
And that oft, often sort of coincides with other things that young men are kind of annoyed by. It's, so it's like, it's, it's, it's the astrology it's, one, exactly. dude. 41% of men said that a woman being into astrology one, is a red That one was confusing to me. I think like, that's fine. You know, that's like a oh, very, Rob, to me, like on. a feminine way of thinking, you know, like I think it's, you know. I, 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 I can't remember who, what, who was it that said, was it they said, uh, um, uh, the big five is astrology for men. <laughs> I've heard that for evolutionary psychology <laughs> yeah, too. Evolutionary psychology, evolutionary is, psychology is astrology is, for men. Yeah, but I mean, well, well that's fine. But they're like, you know, a lot of well, a lot of men, but but at least in my experience, more women are interested in the MBTI, the Myers Briggs, yeah. and that is, I mean, it's you know, it's not it's not completely astrology, but it's more like astrology than the big five. <laughs> I had yeah, it is. So. I had a uh, uh, Spencer Greenberg on the show. Do you know Spencer? Real interesting I, dude. I think I've seen some of his. I yeah, got intro to him from William McCaskill. Um, yeah. Just super interesting guy, mathematician, but just does science. Like, mm. I, I don't know what he's funded by, maybe himself, but, mm. uh, and he did a, a huge breakdown of like predictive power of uh, Myers-Briggs versus mm. Big Five versus other stuff versus other stuff. And uh, Myers-Briggs is like, I think it's like 18% yeah. accurate, basically mm. on actual predisposition mm. uh, of things. But uh, yeah, it is, it, that, that's astrology for astrology. I think. Mm. Uh, what was that study about higher female status and gender equality being associated with lower female uh, relative to male happiness and relationship satisfaction and stuff like that? Yeah, this was a study I came across. I think it was published in 2015, uh, which yeah, essentially found that that higher levels of wealth and and sociopolitical equality among the genders is associated with lower levels of, of relative happiness for women compared to men. And the researchers speculate this may have something to do with increasing levels of employment, uh, the, the pressure to obtain higher levels of education uh, among women in particular, and that this is actually sort of uh, 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 dampening women's levels of happiness. And to me, this, this connects with uh, another, uh, and this one is you know this this classic finding of the the paradox of declining female happiness, mm. which is essentially that since the 1970s, uh, women's happiness relative to to men's has declined. So to be clear, everyone's so so relative to the 1970s, um, everyone is less happy today compared to the 1970s. But in the 1970s, men were actually happier. Uh, no, no, no. Sorry, women were happier than men. Yeah. So women had higher rates of happiness relative to men in the 1970s, and people generally were happier overall. Fast forward to the present, and uh, things have reversed. Men are now happier than women, although overall people report being less happy. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that that study that I pointed out that was an interesting one to me because, yeah, I mean, the the message that a lot of young people receive today is what are the keys to happiness you know you 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 work hard you go you get a you go to college you get a degree you get a high paying job you sort of follow that cookie cutter track and what is the the purpose of all of this um and it's you know i i suppose you know most people say well they want to be happy and so you go through the education and employment route maybe you go to law school after college you sort of get the credentials you go through the whatever the fellowships and all these different programs and at the end of the tunnel you're hoping that you'll be happy uh, and actually uh for both men and women doesn't seem to be working but for women in particular um, because they've had the sharpest decline right because remember mm -hmm. they were happier mm -hmm. and now they're mm -hmm. you know so, so they're crossed they're, over exactly and and so they're uh, uh, diminishing happiness has actually been sort of more pronounced relative to men. Um, the men have the men's happiness being sort of higher than women's is, is interesting as well. And I wonder if that is almost sort of, uh, the, the reversal in some ways, of course, they're less happy overall, but why would they be happier than women? And I wonder if that's to some degree because they don't feel as much pressure anymore. The sort of, um, 
you know, back in the day, men were sort of pressured more to be earners and providers and so mm -hmm. on. And there was a sort of a, a economic pressure associated with that. And now that you don't really have to worry. I mean, we're seeing young men are sort of dropping out of college. They're dropping out of higher education and employment. Yep. And at least in the short term, depending on how the survey questions are presented, if it's just, you know, how do you feel generally or how do you feel today or what have you? I think a lot of you guys might be like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I didn't have to go to class. Well, also, today. Given, given the fact that men were previously yeah. less happy mm -hmm. and relative to then are now less happy. Mm -hmm. Also, it's just that really the the change the big change here is the women yeah. right that's flipped. Right. Yeah, I wonder whether um, like the male dissatisfaction with the uh, gainful employment status seeking providing thing was just baked in already. Mm. It's like oh okay, like we 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 already knew this. Like yeah. granddad was spit and sawdust and he was unhappy, and dad was spit and sawdust and he <laughs> was unhappy, and I'm yeah. spit and sawdust and I'm unhappy. But yeah, there is yeah. a little bit less pressure mm -hmm. to do this. Uh, yeah, yeah. was that Candice Blake that did that one? Uh, the, the, the female happiness yeah, yeah, study. Yeah. I don't recall the, the, the authors of that one, she, uh, but it was in the journal of happiness studies. She definitely taught me about either that or something similar, mm. which is, yeah, that, you know, the gender pay gap positively predicts relationship satisfaction. Oh, I have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, they, yeah I read that paper, um, <laughs> which is, you know, it's, <laughs> and it's, it's funny because it, so it, it predicts relationship satisfaction if men earn more than women. And then it also, there was, there was a reversal of this. Um, I don't know if, if, if Candice was a study on this or a different, different, uh, authors, but they found that when, when women in marriages earn more than men that this predicts higher rates of of, of arguments of verbal aggression on behalf of the woman of just general relationship uh, um, higher dissatisfaction rates of, higher rates of domestic violence infidelity on the part of the man yeah as well men are more uh, likely to cheat when they earn less uh, yeah. 50 percent increase in the use of erectile dysfunction medication when oh, the woman's I, the primary breadwinner i heard that too <laughs> yeah that's uh yeah that's pretty it's pretty i mean it's, it's grim but then you know i i uh you know here, here's an anecdote i remember when I was in undergrad and I had this conversation, it was, uh, you know, it was me and then like this, this group of, of, of women, these female students, and one of them, you know, she was a pretty hardcore feminist. And she said that it should be 50-50, like 50% of women uh, should be working, you know, 50% of women, it, like if it's the case that 50% of women are working, 50% of women should be at home and same for men. You know, if 50% of men should be working, 50% of men at home, and, uh, and then, you know, so then I was basically just sitting back, like I was not going to get entangled in this, but then some of the other women were saying, you know, okay, so, you know, but like, would you actually be like, okay with that? Like your husband's staying at home. I don't really know, whatever. And then, and then finally I decided to, to jump in and I said like, you know, speaking to, to this, this, this young feminist woman, I said, yeah, can like, so I know that you plan on going to law school. You're very smart. You're going to be very successful. Like, how would you feel like your husband is at home, I don't know, changing diapers and taking care of the kids and you're at, you know, you're at a, a prestigious law firm with a bunch of high powered attorneys. Like how would that, you know, you think you'd be happy in that situation? And her response was, um, wow, I, I got like, I think I just felt a tingle when you said high powered attorneys. Like I got really excited when you said that. That was basically her reaction. Wow. <laughs> and it was half joking, but half serious. And they, all, all of the women laughed. I laughed too. I mean, it was, yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. it was a, you know, it was a good response. But like, I think, you know, that there was an element of seriousness there, right? That like when you, you know, when she's sort of fantasizing about like, yeah, rubbing shoulders with all of these, you know, high powered, successful at the top of their game and then you got your husband at home and i think it's just it's different right like it's mm -hmm. men and women are different we're attracted to different things yeah it's interesting to think about uh the potential pressure that uh may come along for the ride with you are supposed to 
be gainfully employed and have your education and be able to sort this sort of stuff. Um, that's something I, the, not just the going to work, not just the getting up early and, and mm. the hours of sleep and all the rest of it, but kind of the psychosocial interpretation of being a person that is status striving and playing the game of the water cooler and all of that mm. stuff kind of doesn't really factor into the discussion about, you know, is it in conscientiousness? Is it a part of your hard work, like your grit and your resilience and your desire for all this stuff? Mm. But there's just a, like a soup that comes along for the ride as a part of being a person who's playing the employment and the education game and having to go out for drinks on an evening and schmooze up to the boss and all that sort of stuff. And uh, no one really talks about that because that's part of work, right? Mm -hmm. Like that comes along for the ride as a yeah, part yeah. of work, but no one ever talks about that. And it's like, okay, like it's the classic, do you want to be a CEO mm. woman? Do you really want to do 80 hour weeks? And do you really want to do that? And it's like, do you really want to play this game mm. for 20 years mm. of fucking sucking up to people and, and having to do the social network manipulation and deftness and all this stuff? That being said, uh, given uh, women's sort of predisposition and, and, and ability to be a little bit more like uh, subtle with, with their cues yeah. and their emotional intelligence and stuff. I actually imagine that on that side, they might be, predisposed to it well but mm. as it seems uh their well-being may suffer more than men's yeah. uh, despite their capacity for doing it being uh as good or greater yeah i mean i almost wonder if it's uh it's sort of the reversal of what we were speaking about earlier about you know young men who who don't want to do hard things but then once they do them they find that they enjoy them and they appreciate it whereas in this in this context you know maybe maybe a some women think, oh, if I follow this this track and get get a lot of education and go to, you know, it'll make me happy. And then once you get there, it's actually not it, it's not as satisfying as you would have hoped. Mm. Um, it's actually worse than you expected. And I think a lot of actually, a lot of, I know people like this. As I as I'm speaking and thinking about it, I know a lot of people who, you know, they think that once they get there, um, it's they have this certain image of what it's going to be like. And actually, yeah, working 70, 80, 90 hours a week, um, and even you know, they are doing well financially, they are making money, they are buying all of the material goods that they thought they wanted, um, wearing, you know, amazing clothes, nice apartment in the right parts of the city and so on. Um, but they just don't have time to enjoy it because they're always on the clock, nonstop working weekends, <laughs> yeah. no time to appreciate. Um, you know, but there, I think there is an element of the sort of social signaling where, you know, the almost at some point, the only satisfaction they really have is the fact that they can tell people about these yeah. goods yeah. And, and their job and how prestigious it is i was teaching you last night about my theory of uh surplus mate value mm. uh, so chris bumstead mr olympia classic physique champion three or four times comes on the podcast and tells this story about how he cries on the bathroom floor a few weeks before he's about to win the mr olympia because uh, he's super stressed with all stuff going on in his life and the pressure of having to win and all the rest of it and his like girlfriend sort of holds this dude that's like 260 pounds presumably just holds the top of his head uh in his arm and in, in her arms and says like it's okay and blah 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 uh, but this was the guy that is the living instantiation of the Giga Chad meme, right? <laughs> okay. Like he is the dude that is over the Peaky Blinders quote, like the Killian Murphy quote from Peaky Blinders as he speaks over the top and it's just Chris Bumstead just looking like mean and stoic. Like he's mm -hmm. the Sigma male meme that's mm. been used on TikTok, right? Like he's Mr. Sigma male. Mm. And I brought up to him this kind of odd uh, irony that 
the guy that is the face of the Sigma male meme, the stoic, you know, emotionless, just grit and grind and go through it thing, was heavily dependent on his girlfriend mm. in order to be able to go and achieve the next part of his, you know, trajectory. Right. Uh, and one of the things that interestingly got brought up in the comments was, well, yeah, he can do that because he is Mr. Olympia. And it got me thinking about surplus mate value. So if there's a sufficient disparity in mate value, mm. uh, not to say that Chris's, Chris's missus is like a smoke show, super smart. I'm pretty sure she went to like, like multiple college degrees plus like world fitness competitor herself in her own rights. But it's like, there is just a ladder that you can continue to climb if you go and be world champion in anything. Mm. And basically that uh, Chris had so much surplus mate value in his relationship uh, that he could get away with withdrawing from this bank account. He's allowed to cry. Okay. Uh, but if the uh, if you're not the world champion, right? Like maybe the guy that comes 20th, maybe he's unable to do that. Mm. Um, and if he, <laughs> if he did cry on the floor, yeah, that would yeah. dip him below and I the see. girlfriend would see him for the vulnerable cook that he is and, yeah. and, and leave. Uh, but yeah, just it's kind of an unfalsifiable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I mean, it's it's just, it just seems like an illustration of of counter signaling, essentially, right? Mm. Like when you're, I mean, the the whole idea of counter signaling is like once you reach a certain point uh, in in a status domain, you uh, you can you know you can actually behave the same way as someone very low on the status domain would behave, and it actually increases your status even more. Uh, and so, example I like to use is uh, this classic work from from Jeffrey Miller and his colleagues about uh, self deprecating humor. That if you're a very high status person and you're holding a meeting or you're just in a social setting and you make fun of yourself a little bit, um, people actually, it, it uh, ingratiates you. It, it sort of uh, increases their admiration of you. That, mm. oh, he's just a humble guy. He's making fun of himself. But if you're a low man on the totem pole and you start making self-deprecating jokes, people don't want to be around you. They're like, oh, who's this, you know, this this guy who uh, doesn't like himself very much or it's just, it just, it hits people the wrong way. Mm. Um and then, uh, yeah, our mutual friend Rory Sutherland likes to use the riding the bicycle on the way to work example, which we we, we mentioned this last night too about how if the uh, you know if the the guy who works at Pizza Hut rides his bike to work is because he can't afford a car, but if the CEO rides the bike to work, it's because he cares about his health or he cares about the environment or he's just uh, you know he's just a conscientious guy or you know there's there's we we and, and it makes us like him more that he's just uh, you know he's riding his bike he doesn't you know he doesn't have to drive the fancy car uh, and makes us like him even more and I think yeah there's something there about that that sort of the counter signaling element here and i think you can see it in, in in a lot of different walks of life um just like how how much self-promotion people do there was a um a classic paper called too good for school um one of the early papers on the counter signaling um uh sort of research area and this was about uh, so this was i want to say in the early 2000s where they asked uh or what they did was they gathered um syllabi from college professors and found syllabi the, the syllabus you know, is that what the plural, plural of the plural of syllabus dear yeah. god okay um and so they gathered these from various institutions and rank ordered them and essentially found that the, the more prestigious the institution uh the less likely the professor was to use their title on the syllabus so if you're you know if you're at some fancy ivy league school they would just say i am whatever bob smith but if you're sort of mid-tier or lower down it's you know uh, uh dr so-and-so mm -hmm. or professor 
so and so emeritus whatever PhD, yeah all da, the da, degrees da, everything yeah, yeah. and then they also called the so this was back when people still had uh, answering machines and so they called the offices of these professors and found that uh this the is dr the rob henderson yeah, phd <laughs> msc can't have so whereas at um at the the the, the higher ranked universities right so it's exactly the this same is bob. Yeah. yeah yeah they say hey, yeah yeah bob call me later whatever whereas yeah the lower tier it's yeah dr so-and-so you know this office this department and just all of their credentials and I, I think we're now seeing this to some degree in like the uh, the social media space now, or in like how how uh, much self promotion people do. Mm. If you're an established author, you can maybe make one or two announcements. But if you're still sort of struggling and still trying to make it, you have to do a lot more self promotion. And yeah. but there's a reversal of this where if you um, so so there was there was another paper when it was something like uh, when when disclosing good news goes wrong, something along these lines, where if you're very high status person doing very well in your life and you do a lot of self promo uh and, or or if you do a lot of sort of um uh, uh counter signaling people don't like it uh and so uh an example that i've given is uh so like a first time author uh if your book does very well and you write this long post on social media you know i want to thank all of you for following mm -hmm. me on this journey <laughs> blah 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 but if an, a super famous well-established author does the same thing it comes yeah. across as a little bit gauche as a little bit like we already knew you were going to do well like you don't yeah. have to play this like mock humility so i've thought about this from a like a, a storytelling perspective mm. especially over the last six years that um going back and talking about when I ruptured my Achilles and set up a special kind of stand so that I could do it with my foot elevated in a boot. I remember those days. Yeah, we, we I'm pretty sure you yeah, were on the We had the FaceTime yeah, exactly. and I'm like, is that your foot? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not attached yeah. to my the rest yeah, of my yeah, leg. Yeah. Um, that that's that's kind of cool mm. to, to track that journey. So, you know, for mm. the people that are on any kind of uh, trajectory with whether it be content creation or a business or something like that, I think that there's an awful lot of value of saying the things as they happen, mm. of kind of showing the shit times. One of mm. Alex Hormozzi's biggest regrets in life is that he didn't track the shit times more mm. because he's now worth hundreds of millions of dollars and he lives in this nice penthouse and he can retrospectively tell people about the shit times, but it's not the same as showing them, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And when you get, pr presuming that all of your plans go well and you end up in the place that you want to end up in, when you get there, it's going to be way more difficult for you to try and tell people about the non-ivory tower that you used to live in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think that tracking tracking your journey as best you can, and you know, getting the posts out there, or uh, writing about the times that have been rough, or, or things like yeah. that, writing about the challenges. Not only is it, I think, a, a useful tool for yourself to remind yourself to go back and read or, or watch or whatever and see, oh, I went through a period that I had to be resilient. That means that mm. if I face a similar challenge in future, I can also be resilient. But also, it's a good like way marker in the ground of like, mm. here, here I was. This is kind of evidence, skin in the game of how shit life has been, at, at least at some points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah, I mean, yeah, I like, I like that example. And if you, especially like I've seen these cases of people who are very successful and they, they don't really talk about the struggle mm. until they're already very successful. And then once they start talking about the journey, people don't really take it as seriously. It's like, well, why are we just now hearing about this? Or why haven't you talked about this before? I'm not sure I believe this. Uh, or you just sort of whatever, like like uh, embellishing this to, to make the journey more interesting. And yeah, I think there is there is value to sort of tracking it along the way and to... 
yeah, to, to sort of reflect. And, and I think it's, it's also just like an inspiring message too to other people who are also struggling very early in their, in their careers or in their, in their lives. I um, think, you're, I think yeah. your book's going to do this. I'm uh, really super excited. I'm aware yeah. that it wasn't supposed to be a like, yeah. you know, you too dispossessed human can yeah. become, uh, they yeah. go through the US Air Force and yeah. fucking Yale and, you know, yeah. all that stuff. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I, I really think, you know, like reading it, reading yeah. early versions of the of the manuscript, I was like, fucking hell, like this yeah, is, yeah. you know, it's kind of like yeah. the anti-black pill message. <laughs> like the guy who kept on just yeah. getting kicked in the face by life ends up kind of succeeding at the end of it. Yeah. I'm super yeah. excited for it to come out. Yeah, that wasn't the intention, but I but I have, yeah, heard heard similar sort of feedback. Uh, a friend of mine who, who joined the Navy, um, and he was, yeah, he had just gotten out of basic training and he was still eating shit sort of early in, in, in his, his military career. And yeah, he read an early manuscript and he was like, yeah, this was, this was great. Like, this is exactly what I needed in this moment. Cause I was just feeling so, so awful. And like realizing, God, just put one foot in front of the other, just keep trying, keep taking shots. And, uh, and yeah, it'll, it'll, you know, hopefully, you know, work, work out as, as long as you sort of have your mindset right and your priorities in order. Um, yeah, man, it's, uh, can I, yeah, people pre-order that yet? Yeah, Is yeah, it listed? It's, it's up. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, we can talk about it. It's fine. It's, it's oh, you're coming back pre-order. on, you're coming back yeah, on yeah. for the book. So don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. we will but do yeah, a full it, thing It's for up that. for, it's up for pre-order. Um, I'll do Everyone needs to go and pre-order later. Rob's book right now. I want to yeah. shove this down the throat of the culture. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. And it, it has a bit of both. I think there's something for everyone. I mean, there's a lot of sort of first person narrative driven stuff, but then there's also a sort of sociological analysis and a lot of sort of there's stuff on on status, on um, how we evaluate other people, and those kinds of things sort of work their way in. Especially uh, in the later chapters of the book, I, I do this thing where I sort of write each chapter from the perspective of myself at that age. Um, but yeah, as I sort of enter adulthood and become a sort of more curious and reflective person, I sort you, you know you can sort of see the way that my mind I guess sort of develops and the way I start to think about things. So yeah, man, yeah, I'm I'm excited for it too, and uh, yeah, I'm pumped yeah. for it to come out. And the cover's cool. It's you as a kid riding a, a bike, bike down yeah. the street. Yeah. Uh, so you taught me about this Baumeister idea mm. about why ovulation might be concealed in women. Yeah. And I've got a counter like bullshit hypothesis as well. So what oh, cool. what was the what's that idea that you learned from Baumeister about ovulation? Right. So this was a, a chapter. Uh, it was a speculative chapter from from Roy Baumeister, this eminent psychologist, um, where essentially the idea here is that so women have concealed ovulation, right? You can't necessarily tell when they're ovulating the way that you you know you 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 vis- very vis- visibly can with other great apes with chimpanzees and so forth. And so the speculative idea is that uh, it so so a lot of evolutionary researchers have suggested that this is, you know, maybe concealed ovulation is to conceal from men, right? Like, so that men don't necessarily know when the woman's ovulating or, you know, whether whether to sort of reduce the risk of sexual coercion or to um, sort of uh, obscure paternity uncertainty or all of those kinds of things. Whereas this speculative chapter um, posits that it's actually uh, to conceal uh, ovulation from themselves so that women don't know because back, you know, so, you know, this is you know vastly oversimplifying, but back when women started to be, or human beings in general started to become sort of self-reflective and introspective and, and fully conscious and women could suddenly tell, oh, when, when I'm ovulating, I'm more likely to get pregnant. They could visibly see it. Then they would be less likely to have sex. 
and and in order to um to essentially sidestep the burdens of pregnancy because pregnancy was extremely risky mm. and uh you would and, become and aware you would right. be, as a woman you become aware of your own yeah. menstrual cycle exactly. and avoid particular and avoid, periods exactly. appropriately and so the idea here is that eventually uh, only the women who uh, had concealed ovulation were the ones to reproduce and then gradually over time all women uh, had had obscured uh, ovulation and and this was essentially uh, a way to to sort of prevent women from from uh, sidestepping their, their own possibility of pregnancy and then uh, yeah and some of the some of those uh, those those um, excerpts that I sent you there was a nice line from Leslie Newsom in this book that just came out a couple of years ago called The Story of Us, which is a nice sort of sweeping, updated overview of human evolution. And essentially, you know, what she writes, she and her her co-author, they write that, um, you know, historically there may have been women who uh, avoided the burdens of pregnancy, but those women are not our ancestors, <laughs> right? It was the, the the women who did under undergo this this very difficult, challenging, and dangerous experience, mm. and those those were the ones. So I thought those two those two findings uh, neatly dovetailed. But I'm curious to hear what's your sort of. Uh, I'm pretty sure that it was Roy yeah. that taught me about this one as well. No, it might it might have been Candace Blake that um, other women mm. are. If if a woman, while she's ovulating or about to ovulate, is put under intense social and physical stress, it can cause the ovulation to misfire. Uh, so women who are under real significant stress, it messes up their menstrual cycle. But many women that are listening to this may know that their menstrual cycle kind of, if they're super stressed at work or they're studying for exams or whatever, like the stuff gets squirrely, right? Like guys might struggle to get an erection. If they're super stressed, women might, mm -hmm. might their menstrual cycle can go all over. Uh, and one of the arguments is that uh, concealed ovulation stops other women in your tribe from fucking with you. <laughs> while they know that you're potentially fertile. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, so I, I think like that, so so these hypotheses are not necessarily mutually exclusive. They all work right? together. They all sort of- and, The pair and, bonding yeah. thing, like if you don't know when you're ovulating, if you don't know when you're fertile, mm. it means you need to have sex more frequently with your partner, which increases the pair bond, mm. which actually means that husband is gonna stick around or that father is gonna stick around mm -hmm. with woman in order to be able to raise child. Yeah, 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 I think there, yeah. So, so and, and it may require all of those different um, mm. external phenomena to, to produce that outcome, right? Like one of those alone might not be enough where, you know, if, if it had only been the, the concealing ovulation from themselves, maybe we would still have, you know, some, some percentage of women who were visibly <laughs> uh, ovulating and others who aren't, but it may require all of those different um, trends working together to produce the situation in which uh, uh, women are no longer sort of visible when they're, when, or the, the ovulation is no longer visible uh, among women. So, so yeah, I mean, this is, uh, I think, yeah, this is, this is sort of a, 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 a often this this obstacle people kind of run into or this trap that we we think like it can only be one or the other but this yeah i don't think this is necessarily many a reason. many many things right i mean evolution is complicated and intricate and so many things are going on so. i think um concealed ovulation given that it's super rare in the animal kingdom mm -hmm. i think as I think well so yeah uh Concealed ovulation is one of these things that appears to just trigger a whole host of, it doesn't matter which of these hypotheses are correct, mm. uh, there are so many benefits, right, mm. from a, a, an evolutionary perspective. Mm. You just trigger all of these different things. You take 10% of them, you're like, it's a pretty good deal. Mm. That's pretty, works pretty well. Yeah. Uh, what's that? Um, Solomon's paradox mm. that you you were teaching me about. What's that? Yeah, so Solomon's paradox is so it's a finding in in psychology, but it's named after the the biblical King Solomon, 
who had a reputation for being the wise king. And there was this, this adage that arose uh, uh, that if you have any issues, you should ask King Solomon. And famously, most people know the King Solomon story of the, the two women who claimed uh, uh, that they were the mother of the baby. And then he um, so, you know, kind of uh, sneakily said, okay, well, we're just going to cut the baby in half. And he knew <laughs> that if we, you know, he knew that uh, if he did this, that the, that the actual mother would step forth and say, the other woman can have it. And, that, that, and that's how he, you know, so, so that's how he sort of re- resolved this issue. But it's a paradox, or they, 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 they assigned this label, the Solomon Paradox, because King Solomon himself in his personal life was actually not very wise. So he was wise for other people, but in mm. his personal life, um, you know, he, he, he made a lot of mistakes as a king. He, um, he uh, was, was not a particularly good father to his son, and his son actually grew up to be a tyrant and, and actually a very bad king because he had sort of uh, uh, mismanaged his own parenting. And so... In psychology, the Solomon's paradox is that that people can be very wise for other people's social problems, but are often less than wise for their own. Mm. And so there was a recent meta-analysis that just came out, uh, various studies looking at the Solomon paradox, are people sort of wiser when reasoning about, you know, the, so they, you know, they'd bring people in, people who had recently gone through a breakup, for example, and sort of ask them, well, what do you plan to do? And so on and so forth. And then they would bring in, um, other people, either strangers or the participants' friends or people, you know, peers of theirs, and say, "Well, what do you think this person should do in that situation?" And and found, and they found various ways to sort of uh, uh, measure this of of how to how to sort of um, measure wise decision making, and found that uh, you know that social distance actually actually helps. It's the peer or the stranger who can say, "Okay, so this person has just been betrayed by their friend, or they're just going through a breakup, or they're having some difficulty in their social lives." Well, here's probably the best way to go. And uh, the idea here seems to be, yeah, when you're sort of emotionally entangled, it's hard to sort of act rationally. It's hard, hard to ra- act in a way that um, you know, that 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 will benefit both you and, and and maybe the other party as well. And so, as I was reading this, I think you know, it's it's a really interesting finding in and of itself. But then I also um, <clears throat> I also wonder. So so I'll actually give an example of this. Uh, so there was a there was an, an interesting study on on economic games. And so there's this game called. Um, uh, the the ultimatum game uh, in behavioral economics, and uh, the simple version of the game is that uh, so imagine you and I are playing the ultimatum game, and the researcher gives me ten dollars and says you can give some amount to Chris, uh, and if he accepts the amount, then both of you walk away with the money. And so I'm under this, you know, the, I I I have to deliberate and think, okay, so how much do I have to offer Chris of my ten? He knows I you you know I have ten, hmm. uh, so you know I have ten. How much do I have to offer you to say that was a fair deal and we both walk away? Hmm. And what the researchers find consistently is you have to offer at least thirty percent. Um, I would have, said, offered, I would have yeah. said thirty percent. That felt about yeah. right. Yeah, and same. Yeah, when I first, I'm like, oh, thirty. Yeah, that sounds fair. Um, any any more, it would feel like un- unrealistic, but any less would feel unfair. Um, and so that's what they f- consistently find is around thirty percent. Um, but they've done different versions of this game where you're playing on behalf of someone else. So so it's actually it's it's um, economically irrational to take anything. Um, uh, to, 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 to decline any amount greater than zero, essentially, yes, you course. should, yeah, you should take anything, right? Because, you know, it's one like is better than yeah, zero. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so what they find is that when you have someone play on behalf of someone else in the ultimatum game, um, so I'm playing for a friend, whatever, um, or you're playing on behalf of a friend that people will accept any amount greater than zero because they can step back and not get so, okay, well, is it fair? Is it not fair? It's okay. So my friend either walks away with nothing or they walk away with $1 or $2 or whatever it happens yeah. to be. Um, 
And so, so I found that finding the Solomon's paradox interesting because I wonder if there's something, if, if this can be applied more broadly to what's going on with young people. You've seen some of these data about young people having fewer friends, fewer social contacts, less likely to be in relationships, less time uh, in actual physical social spaces. And this, the Solomon's paradox indicates that it's actually helpful to have social contacts and to have friends to talk your problems through with. So if I'm having an issue and I've done this before, I'm like, you know, I, someone, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, making a decision in my career or something, I'll call you, I'll call someone and say, hey, what are your thoughts on this? And that can sort of help me to contextualize and you'll see things that I don't see and so forth. Um, but if you're a young person uh, and you don't have many people around you, that so so you're already unhappy because you don't have very many friends, but then without the friends and people you can communicate with to talk your problems through with, um, in, in, in your life, whether it's in your career or other, other social domains, romantic relationships and so forth, you become even less happy because now you're making unwise decisions, uh, you know? And so there's this sort of negative feedback cycle that may be Fewer people here. to show you your blind spots. Exactly. And, and to sort of list out the options that you could take that you aren't seeing or list out the, uh, the negative outcomes that could occur if you make the, the decision that you're leaning toward. Um, and so, yeah, over time, this may actually be exacerbating. It's not just about loneliness. It's also about the sort of Solomon's paradox and making more unwise decisions in your life. Right, yeah, this sort yeah. of recursive isolationist decision-making, which is suboptimal compared with if you were, so not only would you have the support network, I would feel yeah. better, but on top of that, I would also be making better decisions, which downstream from that would lead me to have a better life, presumably, including maybe a better life where I have more friends around me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris, did you ever watch this show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Yeah. Yeah. So I watched uh, a like, I watched a couple of seasons of like the new one. This was during the lockdown. A couple so of seasons? A couple, yeah. Lockdown, man. You right, know, okay, is, I yeah. got to do something. Yeah. <laughs> is that a World of Warcraft? Well, yeah. it was playing in the background, right? So I'd put on, you know, because I used to watch the show as a kid. I like, put on the back. It was almost like a comfort thing, got you know, yeah, or the yeah, lockdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one thing that I noticed was, um, I don't know, like they changed, you know, they used to have these lifelines. One of the lifelines in this like updated version or the whatever the COVID lockdown version was that they would bring their smart friend along and that was a lifeline. Like they bring their smart friend, they'd be sitting in the back. Uh, and if they wanted to use a lifeline, they'd turn around and ask their smart friend, what do you think? phone a friend was one. Be, I wonder if they did that because of like Google or something, you know? So if, if you phone a friend, the friend can just look it up online. But now if they have it right, right behind them, they can't look up okay, online what okay, the answer yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was watching this and I, and I thought to myself, like, yeah, if you like, if you don't have any friends, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or what do you do? Like, yeah. who do you bring along? And I think you can sort of apply that to your life more broadly. Like it's, you know, you're in the who wants to be a millionaire game. You bring your smart friend along, but you know, life isn't who wants to be a millionaire, but life is a series of making difficult decisions. And if you can't phone a friend and say, hey, what do mm -hmm. you think? Like the game becomes harder for and you. And also if you do get accepted to who wants to be a millionaire. Yeah. You're not going to have the friend to bring along with you specifically for that situation right. as well. You're, you're missing out potentially on a million dollars. That's a million dollars that you could have had. Yeah, I um, I think there's definitely something sort of recursive going on here. And it's like the that inner citadel thing that you taught me about, which I just can't unsee. Mm. That Isaiah Berlin idea of if you cannot get what you want, you must teach yourself to want mm. what you can get. Yeah. You retreat from the fateful ills of the world mm. into this inner citadel. Like um, if you struggle to lose weight, just declare that weight has no bearing on health and that, you know, like body size doesn't impact attractiveness. Or if you struggle to hold down a job, say that all jobs are for suckers and turn to a life of crime. Or if you struggle to make relationships work, say, uh, you know, monogamy is uh, ancestrally unwise and I'm going to become a polyamorous, like, yeah. like polycule type person. Um, 
and I do think that there's an equivalent here, the like black pill, sigma male cope. Um, and I don't think that there's an equivalent for women, right? There's not mm. an isolationist like retreat from the world equivalent for women, which I guess suggests that their social networks uh, tend to be a little bit more sticky than mm. men's. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, uh, Dunbar wrote this book on, on psychology of friendship. And that was one of the points that he made that women are sort of better at staying in touch, reaching out and organizing gatherings. And, and, and it's, what is it? The, um, I don't know if he uses this term, but uh, it's sort of face to face versus shoulder to shoulder that when men have friends, Can't they need to do things it. together. Can't fucking unsee it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've spoken about this on the show before, but for the people that haven't yeah. heard it, um, next time that you're at a party or any sort of gathering, look at the angle of the feet mm. of women talking to women and of men talking to men. Women will talk to women 180 degrees. They'll yeah. be face to face. Whereas men, the average is 120 degrees. Yeah. So it's like blading. Slight angle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and I mean, this shows up. Once you see that, you can't not see it. Yeah. And it's a rule that works across so many different things. The Men's Sheds Initiative in mm. Australia. Did you see that? I had not seen this. They, uh, men... It was an initiative by the Australian government, I think, uh, to try and improve men's mental health. They realized that getting men to sit down in a room and talk like this about their problems didn't work. Mm. So what they did is they built sheds that mm. men came to, and then the men would bring like, I've got this knackered lawnmower and everyone needs to help fix it. Uh -huh. So how are men talking? They're talking whilst their front brain is focused on this thing that's in front and they are shoulder to shoulder, not face to face. Yeah. And they're literally in a circle and everyone's like, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you've got the good drill and he's got the good spanner and I've got the hammer or whatever and let's fix this thing. And God, dude, so me and the missus, we're not getting on well. And before you know it, it's a therapy session mediated <laughs> by this fucking lawnmower. Right, they have the, the, the pretense of repairing lawnmower, but they need that, <laughs> right? They're required. If you just put them in the shed with no lawnmower, mower and they're just standing in a circle yep. it's yeah that's yeah so yeah then that was yeah the face-to-face the -face versus shoulder to shoulder about um yeah women will talk and communicate with one another whereas men will sort of they, they need a reason to sort of do an activity together and and then communicate and discuss Bro, their some of my best so, some of my yeah. best conversations are during pickleball warm-ups oh yeah just dinking, just gently dinking about everyone, know, all of the pickleball pros out there know that mm -hmm. you start off very close to the net and mm -hmm. you play the game within the kitchen and mm -hmm. then you step back a little bit and you play sort of like a mid-level game and then you step to the baseline. And sometimes that warm up when you're close to the net and in the mid-level game will go for 30, 45 minutes with me and one, especially if it's singles, less time if it's doubles. Mm -hmm. Uh, but if it's singles, it's just you and your friend. He's like, dude, work's getting a bit stressful or this thing's happening. And before you know it, you're mm. deep in conversation. In fact, we did this once at South Austin Recreation Center, uh, me and my friend, and there was some guy that was sat on the side. Uh, and he, uh, my friend that I was talking to is a podcaster as well. And I think he was going through some going through some something to do with his life. And we were just talking and talking and talking. And I realized that we must have been doing this for like, at least 20 minutes. Hmm. And it's kind of bad form to hog a court for a hmm. while, especially if you're not playing a game. Hmm. Because when you're playing a game and somebody wins, the winner stays on and the next person cycles in. I and I realized that this dude had been sat, maybe sort of like 50s kind of guy, uh, like very typical pickleball kind of player. And uh, I realized that we'd been just warming up for like 20 minutes. Hmm. Again, bad form. Because um, <laughs> the game will yeah. maybe take around about 10 minutes or so, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And uh I think I turned and said something like, oh, dude, like I didn't realize that you were waiting. I was kind of engrossed in this warm-up and we'll, we'll, we'll get a game going. And he's like, to be honest, that was a really compelling conversation. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I remember thinking, wow, like the male requirement for distraction from emotional communication is so strong that I can play like a full warm-up for a sport yeah. uh, whilst yeah, doing yeah. it.
yeah, you sort of lose track of of time. I think, yeah, I mean, the 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 sex differences in friendship, I think, are there's there's another sort of pattern that occurs where in breakups, men don't only lose their their female partner, but a lot of their Social friends too, because it's the woman who is sort of maintaining the or the, they'll sort of nudge the man to say like, "Hey, have you talked to your friend in a while? You should shoot him a text or see how he's doing or what have you." And uh, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to keep that up um, for a lot of men, right? Because it doesn't come naturally for them the way that it does for women, and they sort of monitor. And you know, there's obviously like sort of evolutionarily adaptive reasons for this that uh, you know men are you know, more expendable and sort of less preoccupied with staying plugged in and survival and all those kinds of things, whereas women are pretty good at sort of monitoring. You don't need to tune up the alloparenting pool <laughs> exactly. the same way that women do. Yeah, and uh, and so, yeah, we see this. Uh, yeah, a lot of the young people in general report having fewer friends, but this is especially pronounced for 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 a lot of young men, um, which is, yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen you and I've seen some others sort of recommend, you know, there, there are a lot of ways, like if you're, if you're a woman and you want to make friends, there's one way to do it, but I think if you're a man, like getting involved in sports, or something, so some kind of activity. Yeah. Like that's the way to do it. It's not just like, oh, I'm gonna try to make this person into my friend. It's yeah. like, hey, do you wanna like go play catch or do you wanna go well, play pickleball? Think about some of your friends, you know, we've got mutual friends that you've been to uh, university with, to studies mm. with. And if you're both a part of a project for a brief amount of time, oh. the male friendship deepens so rapidly. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, I, my ex-business partner that I ran nightlife stuff with for 15 years, a decade and a half, groomsman at his wedding, uh, you know, like phenomenal guy, very formative for me, sat next to him at my first ever seminar and became a business partner there and then. And we're still great friends. I catch up with them every time I go back to the UK, but I'd be lying if I said the depth of our friendship hadn't diminished because yeah. we were no longer working toward a shared mission. Yeah. Whereas uh, editor, Dean, uh, per here's a perfect example. So we brought on a new guy, our YouTube strategist. And um, since he's got brought in, the uh, pace of friendship deepening oh, yeah. has it's just been so rapid because you're not just bonding with somebody that you like, like you selected them to work for the company because you would get on with them and you think that you share your values. But because I spend five hours a week grappling with titles and thumbnails and what, yeah. who, who, who should we book on the show? And fuck, how am I going to sort this schedule out? And then he'll travel and we'll sleep in some shitty hotel. And you know, all of that moving toward a shared mission hmm. i think for men just engenders it's more than it's like brothers more than friends yeah right yeah, you know yeah. it's almost like for warfare yeah in a in a regard solving a problem together yep right you're solving a problem everyone needs solution. a lawnmower yeah yeah everyone needs a lawnmower to fix yeah yeah, yeah that's well yeah that's well put i mean it's uh yeah having having that share and so so one thing i'd be curious about with with men and women because i know that there's there's various studies sort of indicating that there is this sort of turnover rate, this sort of friendship half-life where supposedly, I mean, I've seen different different stats, different studies on this. Some some say seven years, some say 10 years, where roughly half of your friendship pool turns over every seven years or every 10 years. You lose half and they get replaced by another group. I wonder if this is more likely to be the case for men than women, simply because of that sort of uh, the 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 way that problem solving facilitates friendships. And once you've solved the problem, once you've written the book or once you've done the task or Very once you've- interesting. Then you sort of move on, you, you know, whatever. In, in the case of academics, you write, you know, you write your chapters and your papers together or you do your research studies and then it's like, okay, moving on and you mm. sort of lose touch. And so I wonder if there is that sort of gender divide in, in friendship turnover as well. Yeah. I don't know that though. Yeah. Rob Henderson, ladies and gentlemen. Rob, it's just so much fun to catch up with you. I'm glad to get to see our first one in person. I love it. As well. Yeah. Uh, you'll be back on in February. When's the book out? Dates? February 20th. 
February 20th, three days before my birthday. What a lovely birthday treat. Uh, so you'll be back on when you come through Austin. Where should people go? They want to read more of the stuff that you write. I love your Substack. I only subscribe to, I think, four or five, and they're all ex-Modern Wisdom guests. Uh, where should people go? Substack, Twitter, all that stuff. Yeah, uh, Substack, robkhenderson.com, Twitter, at robkhenderson. Um, easy to find, so look me up and I'll be there. So. Hell yeah. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris.